Welcome back to this hardcore podcast. You just heard Dimension 6, the track Not the Same. It's going to be out this weekend on the FYA Festival, Tampa, Florida, on a two song tape, courtesy of my friend and yours, Carter from From Within Records. Love the energy of this band, and this ties in greatly because if you are just checking them out, and you want to see them live, well, they're going to be in Philadelphia in just a little over a month with Colin Arabia, Street Power, Please Die. It's going to be something fucking awesome at Bonks. That's right. Bringing this shit together. And our friends, Raw Life. Philadelphia Hardcore has a lot of cool shows coming up. We're even locking in some... Awesome shows for May. We're going to be announcing very shortly. It's going to be an awesome year. But it always starts off with FYA. If you heard last week's episode, I hope you enjoyed it. And um, uh, it's a weird day because obviously Michael Gibbons and Jimmy were both put to rest today. Um, Amazing to see the hardcore scene come out for their own. Give love and support. These days we have together are limited they are numbered, but we don't get to see when they end. So take the time while you're with your friends to do these things like FYA and start a band and do a record label. Do these things now. Don't forget to call your friends and tell them that you care about them. And when someone's having a bad time, and, you know, I'm guilty of this, and I can say, like, everything I want to say about being able to hold boundaries and whatever, but... Truth of the matter is, a lot of people go through things. Some people fight drugs. Some people fight addictions that aren't just drugs. And other people just fight themselves. And as long as you could be there for your friends, you should. Because everyone's days are numbered. And that's a dark, weird way to enter an awesome podcast. I say awesome because Matt Henderson, from all the coolest bands in hardcore, <laughs> is on the show tonight. It is going to be a part one. We talk... Maybe a little under two hours, something like that. Maybe Nash, probably a little over two hours. Kind of get you from the point from where his life and hardcore starts to when Madball starts cooking up. Um, it's very weird to be doing these podcasts and having a blast, regardless if it's just my friends or having an insanely awesome conversation about Matt's life with Matt. Um, you know... 2024, we're kicking it up into overdrive into another gear. Um, got a lot of good shit coming up. That's all I can tell you. More venues, more shows, more people involved. Um, best way to follow us is the Philly Hardcore Show's website. And don't be afraid to hit us up on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, all those things. This is Hardcore is the first weekend of August, August 2nd, 3rd, and 4th. Going to keep it pretty much the same way we did last year. A show at the Underground Arts, and two shows Saturday and Sunday at the, what do they call it now? <laughs> Super funny. I'm so distracted thinking about the Maddie conversation. Um, it used to be called the Electric Factory, and now it's called Franklin Music Hall. And we're back. It's fucking cool. Um, I did a little bit of shit on my Excel sheet, and um, <laughs> we are north of... Did a lot of bands the last 16 festivals. And, you know, we're only two years away from 
20 years since our first, and we're still at it. We ain't the biggest, we ain't the baddest, but I promise you, as long as my heart's beating and as long as there's lung in my air in my lungs, we're going to keep doing this. We'll be pushing things up, doing some new shit in 2024 with the social medias. Uh, might even start doing some weird, random um, live shit, like live not meaning like live show, though we've talked about it for other podcasts, like live, like as I'm setting up for a podcast or doing work, might try that thing, what do they call it, streaming or whatever, see if people are interested, who knows, shout out to 185 Mile South, coolest podcast, and if you didn't check it out, the Broadsheet Breakdown, they made the effort, they're going to be doing weekly shows, it's going to be fucking awesome, love that podcast, love everybody involved in it, big shout out to all them, but yeah, I hope the resigning message here before we get into the awesome Conversation with Matt is that while people are on earth breathing, you know, be there for them. And for you young folks out there who listen, um, dig, dig a little deep. You don't have to make some record that's rare from 1978, your most favorite record in hardcore, but there is some completely anthematic, anthemic, an anthem. I don't know how to say that right. But there's some amazing records that are literally like just like landmark records with insane amounts of anthems that you should at least have a working idea of like, oh, that's what this sounds like. You might be surprised. You might even like some of this older shit. And Matt does a great job of touching that, touching on some of the stuff that we'll talk about and we've talked about on this podcast. So it was great to have him on. But I'm going to chit-chat too long. So let's fucking go. So today... To start this whole thing off, this is probably one of the New York hardcore heroes of, I mean, 40 years of hardcore in general. And the story, the the entire energy that he has put into hardcore is absolutely fantastic. The, his legacy is nearly unmatched for the amount of time, the bands you worked with. It, it's an incredible thing. And I've... We had a text thing saying, hey, man, I'd love to have you on to talk about hardcore. And I'm very excited to get into it. So thank you for coming to the show, Matt Henderson. Pleasure to be here. And uh, thank you for that uh, very kind um, intro. If I, if I can, I'd just like to say, you know, I view myself as someone who um, is a part of something that obviously others laid out before me that I was such a huge fan of as, you know, a younger person and was fortunate enough to you know just keep navigating and being a part of it to the point where yeah man i i um i'm still a fan of the bands i wound up becoming a member of if that makes sense that's so fucking cool i love that so you grew up in st paul minnesota st paul minnesota that's right and um so from my understanding, you were probably you were born in the early seventies, right? I was born in nineteen seventy. Yep. Oh, that's fucking awesome! All right, so you're ten years older than me. So, what was what was the scenario that brought like punk rock and hardcore into your life? Like, was what your parents were listening to? Like, what's the what was the steps to get you to actually hear hardcore punk? Like your early music, not like the first thing you heard of hardcore, but like what was the early sure. inclination towards it? Yeah, um, I mean. It, it, it really did come from my parents and it was a combination of 
them as people as well as the music uh, that was played in my house. And, you know, music was a very big part of uh, the, the home life. Like uh, my dad, you know, I mean, you know, the early 70s, right? He had one of those kind of classic stereo systems with the turntable and the separate Fuck power yeah. amp. Uh, even a reel-to-reel tape deck, a quarter-inch reel-to-reel tape wow. deck. Wow. Um, and, uh, you know, he had two sets of speakers mounted in two different rooms in the first house I remember us, you know, me living in, you know, from a very young kid. Um, and he used to play, you know, anything from, like, I, I mean, all, all the all the good 70s classic rock shit, like Zeppelin, Deep Purple, Cream, Hendrix, The Who. And I mean, for anyone that has any sense of what those, you know, bands and records really sound like, number one, on vinyl, number two, on a decent system, number three, being loud and just knowing how good those records sounded, um, I mean, that caught my ear right away. So my, my dad, with his musical tastes and just a love for music, really kind of kicked things off for me. Um, and then my mother was actually a very socially active person. I mean, both my parents together were partners in, you know, what you'd have to call simply the, the hippie movement, right? Um, and I mean, as young as I can remember, my mom, you know, just raising awareness on social social issues right and and speaking her mind I, I mean i can't remember specifically what topics they would have been but you know if you want to just assume any kind of standard um issue at that time being women's rights the vietnam war um things of that sort my mom was very vocal and she would express her views in a room of people where I knew at a young age, not everybody was exactly in line with, and some people were feeling a little awkward. <laughs> and my mom would just speak her mind, and and you know, it was she was very passionate. So combining that early experience of music and that kind of social vocalization um, just kind of set the stage for punk rock for me. Yeah, it was absolutely the blueprint, especially in that time frame, because there, there was like a polar shift in the music being commercial, and it was about selling records and what was like mainstream acceptable. Mm -hmm. And I think I really do think that like every couple decades have like a minute where the clock switches over and everything shifts. You know, yeah. and we'll talk about that even further. But in the seventies, there's almost like the minute nineteen seventy hit the CCR starts running and everybody thinks of the <laughs> Vietnam war and they think yeah. about the social uh, justice unrest and all this stuff that happens. It's a great, it's a unfortunate sometimes they say great, but it's a great background to be raised in because you're seeing society shift. Yes, absolutely. That was it. That was a society shift. I mean, you know, the, I was born just after the civil rights movement had peaked, um, but it was still obviously very fresh in everyone's mind. And we were still working through, you know, integration throughout the country and just racial, um, you know, interactions. Um, and, you know, again, out of the womb, day one taught, you know, 
to be anti-race, not not just be accepting of race of of race, but to be anti-racist. You know. Well, I think uh, for people who don't really have the background, through the fifties into the sixties, there was a really not a not a huge like it wasn't like a migration, but the South really did push a lot of people towards the Midwest and the Great Lakes area, Indiana, Chicago, Ohio. They were having problems from the people coming up. And it was like a whole time, you know, like it's documented all throughout that time from like the 60s and 70s, this shift and change of people coming in because it was one kind of people, then other people came. And I know that there was a lot of different people that weren't used to the shift, you know? Sure. Yeah. Um, you know, and I, I can't speak from experience of that necessarily, but I, you know, growing up with my parents and, and the people that they associated with, I knew they were of one mindset, but I also knew there were other people around us that still thought differently. Um, and there was still a big push for change. Yeah, it's a, it's a juxtaposition. You have the people that want to keep things the way they are and other people that push for social progress. Correct. So what was the first, like everybody has like a first big record, like a record. <laughs> What's the first big record for you? Like the one that kind of turned everything around for you? Well, you know, my musical evolution kind of started with, again, the, the the type of music that was played in my home by my father, which I definitely enjoyed. Um, and, you know, the Beatles were like the first band that I just kind of just really latched on to. I, I liked a lot of the stuff that I heard in the, in the house that he played, but the Beatles, for whatever reason, well, whatever reasons they were, we know that millions of people latched onto that group, um, not just the music, but the personalities of the guys in the band and just kind of, you know, they had like charm and they were entertaining. They were funny. They were smart. They were socially conscious, you know, on some level. Um, all those things just kind of, you know, I latched onto. And as I got a little bit older, uh, not that much older, because my first Kiss record I bought when I was six years old. That's awesome. So, so Kiss, nineteen seventy six, rock and roll over. Um, and you know, again, I'm I'm six, so I already understand what what rock is, and to that point, heavy rock. And Kiss checked that box for damn sure. And then on top of that, being this little kid and seeing these painted faces and the flames and the lightning and the explosions, it's like, well, fuck yeah, this is this is some shit right here. And uh, I was all in and. I, I stuck with that for a while to the point where I started to be around other people. And, you know, I'm going to use words here that I know for the record are offensive, right? I don't, I don't use them uh, in my personal, you know, um, vernacular vernacular. Thank you. Uh, but I'm no stranger to them because they were uh, hurled at me at the young age, specifically like, you know, when you talked about kiss, and kids in the neighborhood, oh, they're fags. Yeah. And it's like, well, what do you mean? Why, where are you getting that, that from? I, you know, um, and yeah, then the one of guy's course, got a demon if, face. How's that, a, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. But of course, if, if that's what people assume Kiss is, and if I'm a fan, well, then by extension, that means I must be too, right? Is that what, what's being implied here? And so, you know, out of the gate, I started to feel a little bit like an outcast. And and believe me, even though Kiss was huge 
they didn't get radio play. Um, and I started to pick up on all these things. It's like, holy shit, I'm, I'm a big fan of this band. And obviously other people dig it, but a lot of people really don't. And so there was this outcast sort of, you know, rebellious vibe to it that, again, just kind of sat well with me. And from there, um, you know, my, my, my old man used to collect, he had a subscription to Rolling Stone back in the day where it was like the village voice with the all paper, you know, format. It wasn't uh, like the glossy type. Yeah, it wasn't, of, um, wasn't really stapled that well. Yeah. Right. Right. And um, the sex pistols made the cover must've been 77. And I even remember my dad, like just reading an article talking about some guy named Sid vicious and how, and you know, my dad would laugh about these types of things because it just sounded silly to him, but you know, he wasn't offended or shocked. And I'm like, so I'm just picking up on it. And eventually um, I remember hearing, so I used to go to the record store and I used to sift through and look at all the Sex Pistols records just to kind of bug out on, you know, what, you know, how much is truth? How much is just rumor about what you hear about these dudes? What do they sound like? I hadn't heard their music. And then eventually over the radio, Joan Jett was being interviewed on a one of the classic rock station in my hometown. And she was talking about her influences and they played God Save the Queen. And that song fucking rocked. So I'm like, all right, great. So now I got the whole package. I know that not only are they bogged out, but like they they rock. So now Sex Pistols is my thing. Um, and that was the true entry into real punk rock. And that would have been like 82. That's pretty fucking badass, man. To be honest, like, well, I know. And, <laughs> and, the, no, and the reason being is it's like, 10 years later where you said like your first record, you purchased was like the kiss when Metallica got big. I was seven years old and obsessed with master of puppets. And that was like, it's a very, it's a very simple thing that you, I can relate to. And I think a lot of people can, but when it comes to like the beginning of punk rock, it's always interesting to hear it from a perspective like yours, because you know, there's some people that catch on to it later. So this, this the thing about, Joan Jett on a classic rock station playing God Save the Queen is pretty badass. I mean, you know, here's the thing I, I feel kind of obligated to say, too, is when I, you know, I do feel fortunate that I have some experiences that not everybody can claim because of the time I was born, right? And that's just, that's just timing. That's got nothing to do with me being the hippest of all, you know, knowing, you know, like I was not always on the bleeding edge of things. Um, it's just the time I was born and the, the era I grew up in. And, you know, I got to see some things that some people didn't because of that timing. When did you start actually picking up any instruments? Was it earlier than this or did, what, what was the protagonist for you to start playing the instruments? Yeah. I mean, again, you know, the, the love for music was very solidified. Um, and, uh, my uncle, my dad, one of my dad's brothers, he actually went to uh, Berkeley College of Music in Boston in the 70s. And wow. for a time, he had his drum kit at my grandma's house. So, I mean, I was probably six years old showing up. I, I might have been even younger. Um, 
showing up at his at their house, my grandma's house, and seeing this drum kit down there, and they used to let me sit back there and just kind of bang away. Um, and then eventually I got a toy kit given to me for Christmas when I was probably like six. And then I got a real Ludwig snare uh, as a birthday present. And I used to just play the snare drum along with like Kiss Alive. Um, and obviously Peter Chris, the drummer, was playing a full kit. But I was just trying to replicate and play along to the songs on that single snare drum that eventually morphed into like this used kit you know, like that Bobby Brady type drum kit. And um, yeah, so I, I played drums for a while and then um, met this kid in my grade school who uh, also had a drum kit and an electric guitar. And it was a cheap guitar, but he could plunk out these just goofy, he, he wrote his own little songs and they were like these stupid names like Oatmeal and Fruit Loops and just instrumental like songs on, on the single string. But he knew how to play the damn thing. Like I had no clue how you did that, right? And then we would play songs together. I on drums, him on guitar. And there was, I went to this alternative school. So it was like, um, it was really like informal. And the band teacher there was this guy that played in local like blues and R&B bands. And he he could play guitar he his saxophone was his main instrument but he could play guitar good enough where he could dumb down like a led zeppelin song or a black sabbath song and teach it to me and i kept telling my my buddy hey you should go try to learn though learn from him you know that way we can play like real songs and he didn't want to do it and i said well fuck it i'll i'll learn to play the guitar and this is right when van halen came out oh so that was another big trajectory like and i remember taking the first Van Halen record to this guy. And I'd already been learning some songs through him and I played eruption for him. And he looked at me, he's like, that's, that's not a guitar. It's a synthesizer. And I'm like, I'm like, <laughs> I know why you're saying that, but I'm pretty sure it's a guitar. And, you know, so again, that was another kind of real shift. Um, so Eddie Van Halen guitar, about 10 years old is when that kicked off. That's fucking awesome. I mean, yeah, and the progression of music just kind of goes into overload. I think from the time we were talking about the Beatles and the Kiss and all that, like if there was a trajectory, it just goes up. Like as far as yeah, what people do, and then the distortions and all the things that happen to music. You yeah. know, the seventies always get seen for because they have like the funk and the jazz still involved in the rock, but then like in yep. 80, it just goes like it just takes off, man. That's so. True. Uh, were you ever able to go to like the big concerts as a kid or did that come later on? Yeah. Um, you know, this is, uh, this is something I, I carry with me, um, and always will. And, and I've, I've given it back to my sons cause I have three young sons. <laughs> my old man took me to see kiss in 1977. I was seven years old. And I was on his shoulders pretty much the whole time because in those days it was general seating, you know? So yeah. you would just get there. Yeah. It was like festival seating, or yeah, general, general admission, they'd call it, right? So you would just go and just kind of move yourself close to the stage. Um, and I was too short to, you know, stand on my own. So he had to have me on my shoulders for the majority of the time. But that was, you know, for anyone that is a KISS fan, the KISS Alive 2 tour, uh, 1977. Um, 
It was mind blowing. So that was that was the first concert experience I had. That's fucking awesome. I didn't see I, mean, I didn't I didn't see Kiss until the late eighties and they didn't have the makeup, but it was still right. one of the loudest things I've ever heard. Sure. And and being a kid, like that was like my experience was like the big uh-huh. rock concert. Yeah, and it, yeah, it's yeah. just so it, it, it's just so insane when you're there. Cause like you said about the records, you're listening on the floor, but when you see this band and the crowd, it, it's just such a different it's such a different experience. And a lot of people that I have on the show had either not been to anything until concerts or they grew up on concerts. And it's always a cool match of who didn't go to a concert till they were playing and who grew yeah. up being fucking mind blown by them. Yeah. Yeah. So as you're growing into all this, when, when do you, does your feet start going towards what would be like the punk or hardcore stuff in your area? Like when did, like, how does that form? Cause I know there, I mean, there's a shit ton of bands from the whole area and there was a huge legacy of the Great Lakes and some of the shows and tours. And yeah. you guys are so close to Chicago and Detroit and mm-hmm. Husker Du and all that stuff being around. It's just a, such a cool time for that music. And I yeah. mean, I imagine that by that time, Black Flag was probably coming through and all that stuff. So, like, how did you connect with, like, the more localist stuff? Yeah, it, it, it took a little time. <clears throat> I was, you know, kind of on my own little punk rock island, if you will um for for a, a bit of time and a, a guy in my neighborhood who I'm I'm very close friends with today and, and was you know through all of childhood but initially when we first met he um you know he, he was he was not a standout type of guy to me like I you know as a matter of fact he was a little older and a little bigger than me. And I, I used to, I don't know why, but I used to kind of like tease him and poke fun out of him and to get him to chase me around. Like, I mean, I'm talking like little kids, right? Um, and we weren't real tight, uh, but I just knew him. And so, you know, as years went on, we'd be at the same school, same classes, not really spending much time together. And he, like I said, he didn't come across as somebody that was hip. Let's put it that way. Right. One day I'm in class. And again, you know, I went to this, what we call it an alternative education school. So there's a lot of misfits, a lot of, you know, weirdos, if you will. Right. Um, And this guy walks late into class with spiky hair, the wraparound sunglasses, camouflage shorts, and I think a clash t-shirt oh shit and and again everybody that knew this guy just knew him as being kind of this square yeah right and this motherfucker just balls out just walked right into this classroom and i mean everybody just started laughing at i didn't laugh at him i was actually i i mean i was genuinely impressed with the balls (laughs) you know what i mean the display the nerve um and I was like, I just, I walked up to him afterwards. I said, yo, what, you know, what do you got cooking over here, man? You know, and, and uh, he had really kind of laid some groundwork. He knew about the local scene. He, his, his um, familiarity with punk rock beyond the Sex Pistols. He was, he was a good, the one guy that told me, he said, yo, Sex Pistols are cool, but that's a long time ago now, man. You know, you got to start digging into some of this other shit. And so he introduced me to Black Flag, to Who's wow. Could Do, 
to dead Kennedys. Um, and, uh, yeah, like he had, he had a skateboard and he had this bullshit little ass skateboard, you know, like those, like the, the old ones school. that really look yeah, like a toy. Yeah. yeah. Um, he, he let me use that. And so now I realized, okay, so I guess if you're into punk rock, you also into skateboarding. And we used to skate around our neighborhood and then eventually, so again, we lived in St. Paul, yeah. which is more of the blue collar uh, city that is of the Twin Cities, right? Which is Minneapolis. Minneapolis is where the shows were. Minneapolis is where First Avenue and 7th Street Entry is. Um, even though Husker Du technically is from St. Paul, all the shows were happening in Minneapolis. And so he was, you know, he took me, we, I mean, we skated to the bus stop, got on the bus, took the bus to downtown Minneapolis, got a ticket to see oh god what was the first show the first big show was the exploited oh, but we've seen smaller shows where where Husker du was on the bill before that in the in the seventh street entry the smaller room now because yeah. everything's cultural what was yeah. that what was that like like obviously use the lens more of like later on when you get to new york but like in comparison right. to when you got to new york and you're involved in that scene like 10 years after the fact, what was that like looking at your first punk rock show versus like the rock concert? Like could like, cause obviously people think in whatever lens they're listening to this now, like, Oh, there's a hardcore show or like a punk show. But what was that looking like to better the way to describe it? Cause I've seen like everyone seeing American hardcore and the videos and the really cool Detroit videos. But like for your sake, walking into it, what were the people like, like, you know, today's kids might be listening to this and they think it's all ninja kicking, you know, like I want to get a oh, good yeah, sense. No, no. Yeah. I sure. want to get a good sense of like what, uh, like, because obviously like, and, and what you did describe it great is St. Paul was more like the houses and the neighborhoods. And it's, it was not as built up as Minneapolis, but that's why it is the twin cities. I can totally see you almost have a connection with the Queens guys who said like they had to take the train into the city where you had, right. you know, you guys, yeah. there's a very similar correlation and connection with that as well. <clears throat> Absolutely. Um, yeah, it's funny, you know, you talk about like the assumptions that, that people today would have of what that show would have been like. Right. And I was, um, I, I was trying to convince my 12 year old son to, uh, sit and watch the movie suburbia with me. Yeah. Like a couple of weeks back. And I mean, that was, you know, that was a staple for us cause you know, it was like, a movie with real punk rockers in it. And it was, you know, like if you watch it today, it's definitely kind of campy. Uh, but I mean, there were real bands, you know, DI, yeah. DI was a real band. TSOL was a real band. You know, um, it was a, it was a mix of real punk rockers in the LA scene plus actors. Right. Yeah. Um, and if you look at the, what occurred to me watching it recently is the shows the, the scenes of the show there, that's what it looked like when I was first going to shows. It was slam dancing. It wasn't moshing. It wasn't kicking and shit. It was slam dancing. And you had the leather jackets and the boots and the, you know, the torn flannels around the waist. Um, and, uh, you know, bands like GBH, Discharge, and Black Flag, Dead Kennedys, those were the, you know, that, that was the, the look and feel of the day. Um, so, you know, uh, yeah, I, I've seen hardcore evolve in a lot, in a lot of different ways over the years. I actually think it's awesome that you had this chance to experience it in like a, not a primordial, but like 
and not in infancy, but like as it's coming up in the Midwest. And then you yes. eventually, and we'll talk later about how you watch it evolve. But it's really an awesome perspective because there's people that didn't see it from that person, like, you know, in that vein, you know, that took, I mean, right now it's a crazy to see. I, I still scour YouTube all the time for shit. And you see these old videos of bands like you just talked about, like TSOL, and you watch it, you have to put it under that lens of, oh, well, that's what was cool back then, like the look. And I, and I also feel like, and maybe you can contradict this. I feel like the people that were going to the shows, they were kind of okay with freaking out the squares a lot more than the kids going to hardcore shows now where you see a hardcore kid, they don't look too much different than the average person first back well, then. Yeah, again, you know, I mean, I'm going to go back to using the term, right? I mean, and I, th this is kind of a saying that I know people are familiar with. And again, I, I'm, I'm going to literally say the word for the purpose of it was this impactful to to people around you. I remember being a punk rocker when it was called Hey Faggot. Yeah. And that's that's literally what it was. I mean, you know, again, I grew up uh, in a in you know, I I was a little bit more middle class than working class, but St. Paul has got a lot of real it's got a very strong blue collar, you know, community there. Um and the majority of my friends, you know, came from that and the majority of the neighborhoods I hung out with were that. And I'm the skinny little kid with spiked hair and boots and a leather jacket that are too big for me, just trucking around the city. And grown men in like muscle cars or pickup trucks would fucking stop their car. Hey, faggot. You know, and they'd get out and they'd want to really fucking hurt me. Yeah. I was, was I was scared and and you know, I didn't stand a chance against these these grown men. At, at 12, 13 years old. Uh, so it was a common thing to just fucking run the fuck out of there. You know, you get chased all the time. Um, so you had to be committed, man. You, you, there was no half stepping in those days. You, no. you would walk into a restaurant or onto a bus or even in school and, you know, everyone's heads turning and everyone's, you know, bugging on you. And you knew that was going to happen before you get there. So when you go to these earlier shows, you you kind of get it's kind of cool that you didn't have this giant big hardcore show as your first thing. But was yeah. the vibe different when someone like a GBH would come to town? Like when the bigger out of town bands, like you'd see more people. It was a little bit, a little bit more aggressive. Because I mean, you watch some of the videos, especially from like the Olympic Auditorium shit, from like the exploited. They look like the the most crazy thing at that time. Yeah, yeah. Um... Yeah, it, it had a different vibe to it for sure. I mean, the small shows were kind of the same way it is today, I think, though. You know, the small shows, you're that much closer to the band. Um, you know, the, 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 the crowd is, you know, a tiger-knit group of people. Um, but you still get your, you know, your slam on. Um, less stage diving because the stage is usually lower to the ground. Yeah. Right. Um, but uh, and then when you get to the bigger shows, you know, you just know that so many more people from different places have, you know, really come to that show. And uh, you're going to get more posturing there and you're going to get, you know, you're going to start to see like, oh, that dude's kind of a kingpin. You can tell like, you know, he's kind of running shit a little bit, you know, in there in that punk rock way back then. Um 
so yeah you know that's kind of similar to the way i feel like it is today yeah i, I always say it's like the training ground like training wheels yeah you know yeah. It's, it's very much yeah. so yeah early yeah. on was there anything local that we don't hear a lot about th- uh, now that was like popping then like band wise from that area well yeah i was thinking about it um you know i told you about that school band yeah which i which i spent you know as much time as i could in during the school day i mean i would bring my electric guitar to school and uh i would ditch any class i could pull off to go hang out in that band room and just jam all day and um the guy who was playing the drums during that period was an older guy i was probably 13 and he was probably 16 maybe 17 his name was Tim Tim Rao, and he played in this. He would talk about his band, and they were called Boy Elroy. Um, and I didn't know anything about him other than I just knew that this guy Tim, who uh, plays drums, who I looked up to because he was an amazing drummer, and he would he would you know he would talk to me like I was actually a competent musician compared to him, which I appreciated, you know, because I knew he was playing with older cats and was you know technically better but i he gave me a, a, a sense of respect that was really appreciated and so i would hear him talk about his band and eventually i got to check him out at this record store in my neighborhood and they were full on punk rock hardcore like they were loud and fast and um again you know punk real punk rockers slam dancing in this little ass record store basement um so boyle roy was one um you know, it's been so long now, man. Uh, yeah, some of the names just kind of. I'm, I'm gonna, you know, what? I'm gonna give a shout out to. There was a band called Outcry. This was a little later, and this was Minneapolis after we'd started going to shows. Uh, they were, you know, kind of the the local opener, hometown hero band, Outcry, and they they kind of they they had a real seven seconds. Uh, uh, the crew vibe to them, and and the singer Jack. Uh, was a great frontman. He would he would you know get the crowd going, and he would uh, you know he would really talk to you. And and um, I remember I can't remember the club. It wasn't First Avenue. It was some kind of you know other off the strip Minneapolis bar. And they were opening, and the security was giving him a little bit of hassle about uh, stage dives. And I remember him. He said something along the lines of, "Yeah, but that's cool." fuck them anyway and he just jumped off the stage <laughs> and it was like you know and number one I, I thought they were great and number two he just recently passed away I'm still friends with wow. some of the some of the Minneapolis guys um, that were you know actually close to him and I don't know any of the circumstances I haven't talked to the guy uh, in years but uh, sorry to hear you know that yeah, he's rest passed in peace, man. that sucks yeah I think these things are impactful, and I think because of who you are in hardcore today, people listening should hear like your up your upbringing in punk, you know, because it's a good it's a good perspective to view from, you know. So, I mean, you know, at minimum, I would just say, you know, there's always opportunity to learn and 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 you know, gain an understanding because, I mean, this move it really is a movement, and if, absolutely. If, and and I I know you, I know you get it. I know the people that we associate with regularly get it. There's some people who don't really 
think of it so much in that way. And, you know, they just like it for the music or for the hang. And that's cool. That's fine. You know what I mean? But um, you, you are kind of missing something if you don't really get that sense of the movement. And when you do get that sense of the movement, it only makes sense that you, you want to keep learning and knowing, like, so what was happening here then? And, you know, how did this get to this point? And, you know, oh, it was that band. And, you know, that's what keeps it, um, I don't know, fresh. How many years later are we talking? You know? Yeah, I mean, especially if you look at some of the things that have been written about hardcore in general, they did a decent job with American hardcore in like, in like a, a basic background where they put that little logos on across the country where there's bands. Yeah. When you start yeah. when you really focus in on something like, for instance, your home scene, there's tons of stuff that happened that and obviously because of who you are now, like you are a representative for that scene as you go on to the world hardcore scene. Yep. You know, so it's important for people to understand, like, yeah, I mean, Husker do I mean, especially in the Great Lakes area, you're gonna I mean, even when we started touring, we're talking twenty years after what we're talking about, we would hit those towns because that's where you play. So you always want to yeah. hear like, oh yeah, I mean, we would go to Minneapolis and you know, it wasn't really often you hit Eclair, but you definitely didn't go to the Midwest and not hit Minneapolis. Right. You know, it's like it's just like what happens. Um yep. so perspective going through these shows is when do you go, I gotta get on this fucking stage? Like when when does like the meat of you go, I gotta do this, or it did it not take on real quick? Oh man, I mean the the minute I started playing an instrument, the minute I wanted to play with a band. Um and like I told you, that that kid that played those stupid little songs on his electric guitar, like to me we were a band. And um, it, it, it really wasn't about like, I want to be on stage. I want to be a rock star. I just really enjoyed playing in a band. And like, I, I still, I get off on playing with a group of guys that, you know, or girls for that matter. I, I haven't really been in a band with, with a female, but uh, a lot of females, you know, kick ass. So it doesn't have to be exclusive to dudes. Um, the point is, getting together with other human beings and making music that just sounds good it's like holy fuck this is this is this is fun and like this is you just there's a feeling that i get from it that i assume others do too that's why they do it you know um so i was playing like i was in a cover band that we eventually started writing our own songs at the age of 10 that's like awesome. me and me and these other dudes at my school um and you know i mean and people would would trip out on us because we were like these 10 year old kids and we could pull songs together we like we had a whole set of songs and, and eventually we started playing like older brothers or sisters house parties Fuck yeah. um and uh you know so by the time i was really into punk rock it was just a given that i was gonna be doing that and my the buddy i mentioned to you who kind of kicked it off for real with the hardcore shit his name's chip he wound up being the singer for my band Blind Approach in Minneapolis. Okay. Yeah. Um, before we go into that, there's always like this Midwest talk about MC5 and influences that come from Detroit with the UK hardcore. Did you, mm -hmm. because you were so young, that was that ever pressed upon you? Like the importance of MC5 kind of pushing that. And then obviously in that area was the dead boys you played with. Like, were you hip to all the stuff that was going around or was it kind of still too young and, yeah, I, I I didn't really latch on to that so much. I mean, 
the thing I knew about Detroit at least was a uh, negative approach. Okay. So you got, I mean, you got, you, when did you uh, first hear them? Was it just through the, uh, through like chipper friends? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, cause, and I, I assume we'll, we'll get to it eventually, but you know, in those days, um, you know, even New York, right? New York hardcore was not the thing that people think of it today. Nah. Right. And, and, you know, this is pre-internet obviously. Um, and your, you know, your reference point was maximum rock and roll because yeah. it was, it was a national publication and they used to have scene reports. So it would be, you know, cover the Minneapolis scene, the Chicago, New York. Right. And so, you know, um, Victim in Pain was a kick-ass hardcore record in the same way Negative Approach Tied Down was, in the same way Leather Bristles, No Survivors, GBH was, right? It, you know, The Misfits, Walk Among Us, right? I mean, um, it was just, and so, but I knew they were from New York because of like maximum rock and roll. Uh, so was I into New York hardcore then? Technically, yeah, but it wasn't like, a, it wasn't the, it didn't have that kind of like real pinnacle that it kind of did later on, which I also became very in, inspired by. But uh, so yeah, Detroit for sure. Chicago. Um, who was the the heavy hitters in Chicago for me at the time? Um, it's funny, Chicago bands, they never really translated all that much to me, but I mean, I, I remember like articles of faith or um, um well, what was it? Big Black? Was that another one? Um, they all kind of had that Husker Du type of vibe yeah, and sound the to effigies them. too. Yeah. Um, you know, um, but uh, I don't know. Husker Du really stood out to me, obviously partially because they were from the hometown. But, I mean, even today I listen to those rec those early records. Those songs are phenomenal, I think. Yeah, they were they were so ahead of their time with the writing and just – They really were. Yeah. It's 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 fucking incredible. Um, I've always said that I think Roger really because of the whatever I, I love to hear his take on it. I know he said he was like already getting records before he even lived in New York when he was living in New Jersey, so he was hip to the UK stuff. But you could mm -hmm. really hear the UK sound in the negative approaches, which will later be impactful and agnostic front. It's like you Absolutely. hear you hear those downbeats. You hear the song just be driven by like like UK subs kind of style downbeats on some songs and shit. It's really cool to see people from the Midwest in New York know about this music. And I had a friend, I had a friend from Kentucky, an old guy who was like around in like 79, 80. He's like, Oh yeah. All them guys up there, they were listening to the UK shit way before we got a hold of it. They were more into the misfits down there. And he's like, Oh yeah, yeah. they were, they were obsessed with all that stuff. That's cool. That's did you see the misfits when they came through in the Midwest or nah, it was a little bit. Yeah. No. I missed the Misfits. I missed Minor Threat. Um, yeah, that was like a short window. It was like three or four years. Of yeah, that yeah, yeah. But, you know, I was, I was just thinking another record that was heavy on rotation and a, and a big kind of energizing thing for me and, and, you know, my buddies back then was uh, This Is Boston, Not L.A. Yeah. I don't know how well you know that record. Like, yes. You know, but for us at that time, I mean, Jerry's Kids, Gang Green, um, who was the other real FUs? big one on there? FUs. Yep. I mean, that record was, you know, I, I haven't listened to it in years, but I mean, great early hardcore.
Yeah, it's like that 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 pinnacle time when everything's coming out, but they're all in some kind of direction towards fast, aggressive. It's a cool, it's a cool energy at that time. And that record really stands out for all of those bands, man. Well, and and you know, that um that was the time where it it, it was the true revolution from punk rock to hardcore punk. Right? I mean, you know, punk rock was the Sex Pistols, the Clash you know, the buzzcocks and sort of just that older, you know, generation. And by the time I'm a kid getting into it, we didn't call it punk rock really at that point. We called it hardcore, you know, but it, it we knew the, the transition. Yeah. Right. Um, so, you know, I, I do think that gets kind of, did you see it? In the, did you today. see it in the? Did you see it in the crowds too? Yes. When it shifted yes. from the hair and the, and the dialed up yes. to the more street kind of look. Um. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I was part of it for a good couple of years, where it all kind of still looked the same. You know. Um. You know, we look more like the British punk rock look. You know, the GBH. I mean. Uh, yeah. Fit. I mean, in '86. Um, '86 was the year that I went to go see. I was going to see GBH for the first time. And I went to see GBH and I had the charged bleached hair. Um, and this band called the Chromags <laughs> were, were opening. Yeah, that was that and, tour they did, right? That little run? And I, yeah. And, and the only thing I knew about the Chromags was uh, they were on the Phil Donahue show. And, uh, you know, they had a bass player uh, who had a shaved head, with a lot of tattoos. And, you know, he he was entertaining on that show. Right. So I'm thinking they're going to sound like this kind of oi thing. Like I, I'm assuming they're like quote unquote skinhead that, you know, and like, if you, you know, if you look at the back cover of that record, which I had before I heard them, um, like Doug Holland's wearing like a, like a pork pie hat or a derby of some sort, yeah. on the, you know, so, and, and like uh, Kevin's got kind of longer hair. I just, I don't know what they were. Like, are they kind of skinheadish? Oi, maybe, you know, who knows? Um, and I walked into that club. Uh, they were probably like a song and a half deep into the set and uh, just jaw dropped. And, you know, that was, that was a life changing moment. And that, that was when everyone actually became a skinhead, <laughs> you know, a I've lot heard, of people I've heard probably, people say that. I heard I heard people say that 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 second wave was partially because of Chromags and people getting hip to that stuff. Well, so Agnostic Front already kind of set the stage. We already knew who they were. Oh, so you and, guys were hip. You guys were getting the records from uh, by that time, like over from over there. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, AF. I mean, uh, Victim in Pain, and even by that time. Um, Cause for alarm. I mean, those were heavy on the rotation. Agnostic Front was, you know, a, a solid band that everybody loved. There was no question about it. Uh, but you know, it wasn't so much like a New York thing. It was just you know they're a kick-ass band. Yeah. Um, and you also knew, you know, Agnostic Front had that skinhead thing because they wore those shirts. Agnostic yeah. Front skinhead, right? Uh, and but whatever. And then now, okay, now you got this other band from New York, the Chromags. And then next thing, War Zones out, and don't forget the struggle. I mean, it was you know the Iron Cross with the American yeah. flag in it, and you know every song was you know a skinhead anthem, and it's like, well, all right, this is obviously what we're doing now. 
Um, and that, you know, so from like 86 to like, shit, I mean, 88, that was, I mean, you know, skinhead, man, that was what it was all about. And obviously there was probably people conflating that to racial overtones and things that would happen. Listen, man, uh, the Oprah show, the Geraldo show, um, you know, like me and Moon, you know, Moon Morris, Toby's yep. wife, we, you know, she, she's from Chicago. Yeah. She knew all the, you know, she knew that scene there. Um, and we were real close to Chicago. Um, and it got to the point where, you know, yeah, the, um, it was, it was pretty heavy, man. Cause I, you know, I mean, I'm introduced to skinhead by way of loosely understanding it's, it's part of a British punk rock culture but not really knowing much more than that and not really digging oi back in those days. It sounded a little too upbeat and bouncy for me. I liked something that sounded a little bit more like angry, to, you know, um, you know, more metal basically. Um, and then, uh, you know, so, but our introduction to hardcore was these New York cats. Um, and suddenly I realized that, my hometown in St. Paul guys that used to, that we, I went to parties with that um, I just thought of as just, you know, fucking meatheads from, you know, the East side of St. Paul, suddenly they're skinheads too, but they were skinheads in a very different way than what I was going for. And what I know Chrome mags war zone and, and agnostic front were about. Right. So yeah, that, that shit became very real, very quick. And I went to a high school, that was very integrated, um, very big. And uh, I had to kind of, you know, clear some things up with some of my, my brown brothers and sisters over there because they're seeing shit on TV that, you know, rightfully so. They, they weren't too happy about, nor was I. No, especially that time, it really was, it really was the embodiment of, you know, why the, why, that song crucified by Iron Cross is so important because no one could really, uh, someone outside the culture couldn't discern what they're looking at, you know, because the immediate negative uh, iconography and look is what's going to overbear with these people, you know, like people are going to go, Oh, this is, must be a Nazi. Yeah. I mean, and there was plenty of people telling them that was the case. And, and, but the fact was they were there. I mean, they literally were a part of the scene at that time, uh, you know, and, and again, this is an opportunity where, you know, you have to give a shout out to the Minneapolis Baldies yep. because, you know, Chip and I and the guys from Blind Approach, we were already, you know, going to shows and, you know, we didn't know a lot of the Minneapolis guys real well, but, you know, faces were at least familiar to us. And suddenly now we're learning, you know, the skinhead thing has taken shape and it's like, okay, so, you know, these these meatheads from St. Paul are, are trying to, you know, they're on their trip. That's definitely not where we're at. And the kids in Minneapolis, which, you know, to me was really, you know, the, um, it, it was New York, you know what I mean? Obviously it wasn't New York, but on a smaller scale, the exact same look and feel in terms of a true urban environment, the mix of the races, which is how I've always grown up. Uh, but they were part of, they were the makeup of that hardcore scene in Minneapolis and they drew the line immediately. 
and said, oh, fuck you guys. Yeah, we're going to, so, so check it out. Now we're skinheads too. And you guys ain't welcome. And obviously when lines were drawn like that, you know, there's only one side I'm looking to take and it ain't the fucking, the meatheads. Now, so, you know, shout out to the Baldies. It's interesting because we had other people on the show and they talked about it from a Philadelphia perspective. And it was very similar. One day, everyone was skinheads. The next day, half of the skinheads turned that angle and people saw that, oh shit, okay, now it's going this direction. Philly was rough. In, I mean, Philly, you know, I know you know, uh, yeah. but Philly, Philly had that rough reputation, you know, as, for as far back as I can remember. And I remember in 88, the first, so Blind Approach was, was, we went on tour. My my singer had, you know, got in touch with enough people where we had some shows booked to get us out to New York City. Um and there was some story in Philly where uh a, a guy in a band, he was he was biracial. I guess he got stabbed, like you know, like Well they was... played they played I know the show specifically, they played yeah. with the band from our area. Yeah. And like we know them guys really well. Like we're tight with them guys now, but there yeah. was a time when they were literally on the other side of the, of the thing. And yeah, this was, uh, I, 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 I actually had it in my notes on my phone because it was, uh, Ju- uh, July 30th, 1988. Okay. Yeah. That, I mean, that, that timeline definitely matches. And we, we had, we had, uh, my, my good friend, Marty, uh, that's what we called him. Then he, he, he moved on to uh, get into a producing gig, and he's now Doc Martin. <laughs> he's 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 up <laughs> in awesome. Mon- Mon- Montreal. But you know, even though not everybody in Blind Approach like would outright refer to themselves as skinheads, you know, I did, Chip did. We all still kind of shaved our heads, regardless. It was you know, it was just you know that was the vibe then, and so you know, put yourself in that position and then going out to these other scenes where they might be heavily run by white power, a white power skinhead presence so much to the point where they're stabbing motherfuckers. You know, I mean, it was intense to be around uh, back then. If we were going to say for Philadelphia hardcore history, that was like one of those threshold moments specifically I was alluding to where obviously I was eight years old and lived seven blocks from there. So I wasn't a part of the hardcore scene, but having all the people from the neighborhood and everything tell me about it. And we've had people talk about on the show, the way it went down is there were people for the first time handing out like white power literature at that show. So right. I remember those days. Yeah. And and, um, sick of it all was the headliner. That's actually from the neighborhood we grew up in. And like, so like there was a why, in fact, some of our early bands did our first shows of that. Why? Like, so it's, it's like deeply rooted in, what Philadelphia hardcore is now, like from all of us knowing the details of that, but it was a moment where people took not only away from the Nazi shit, but they really were trying to organize and yes. the hardcore people. So that was, if you, if you talk to the guys, like the guys that come up, like, you know, I do jujitsu with like hardcore and all them. They were like, okay. that was not a fun time. You know, that was not a good situation because everybody went from friends to, well, I'm on this side and now you're on this side. You yeah, know? and that's yep. and it, it and it, it you know it it got violent. Um, it, you know, um, it 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 uh, you know, I was no stranger to like, you know, again being the, in the urban environment where you know somebody might get jumped or you know, um, 
you know, a, a fight here or there. Right. But um, next thing I know, I'm like more or less in a gang. Yeah. T- technically I never, there was a lot of dynamics involved. Um, and I know that, that my good friends from the Baldies know where I'm at and they, and they always did. Um, I never literally referred to myself as a quote unquote Baldy. Um, but you know, the respect and love for those guys who wore that badge loudly and proudly I've always had. Um, and you know, so there's, there's that mutual respect there, no question. Um, but it was like, you know, I mean, if you're going to a hardcore show in 87, 88, you, you know, there's going to be a fight. Yeah. It's one of those things too. I think that's kind of missing from today's hardcore scene. And it's, a, it's not a sad thing to miss. It's better off, but I don't think that they're really ready to understand. There's, there's going to, there was a sh- time when you, even in our time, and I'm telling you 10 years later in Philadelphia, it was guns and knives outside of shows. Yeah. Of Nazis. yeah. And the thing is, is whether you're a hardcore kid or not, no one's going to stand next to the Nazi, <laughs> you know, like it was getting bad. And you, and so what you're saying about not being a baldy, understandably, you're still going to stand on the right side of things. If you're away from town, it's a, it's a weird legacy that some of Philadelphia hardcore shows were that way. Um, I didn't mean to skip over blind approach. I just really wanted a good scene perspective to kind of like sure. load into how you started with doing blind approach, because obviously like, you know, you guys aren't Chicago or Detroit. So sometimes some of the stuff got left out, but yeah, knowing people from Minneapolis and and going to the shows and being a part of like seeing kind of involved into more like a metal thing. I, I still have all the books with the old flyers and, you know, like knowing that you got to see that exploited tour at Cro-Mags is fucking sick because these little things like this, you wouldn't think a tour matters, but you don't realize like that exploited tour did so much for hardcore punk. And then four years later, when the youth of the day tour went across the country, you know, like all these different things happen. And it kind of brings more people into the movement just by holy shit, this band stoked a whole bunch of new people to jump into it. Yeah, so yeah. Um, when we were talking about you playing in a band, you were just saying, you know, you were excited about it, but like to start your own hardcore band up, some people say we got a name first. And like, yeah, we were in this band. We have a name or is it, Hey, we had tunes, but we didn't know what to name it. Uh, name first. And <laughs> chip chip. Um, Chip was a natural marketer, right? Uh, he just, he, he and I, I could get into him. I, I probably will uh, in this discussion just because it, it, it all kind of makes sense uh, in what he's, what he's, you know, progressed into. Um, but, uh, you know, at the time, he was just, uh, there was no debate. If you want a guy on stage with a microphone in hand to get a crowd you know, to pay attention to what's going on. He was the guy. And so, you know, he had the idea, okay, Matt, I know you play guitar. We're going to start a band. I'm like, all right, cool. You know, I'm going to sing. Uh, we're going to call it damn D A M M drunks against mad mothers. And, uh, <laughs> he had, uh, he already, you know, he was, he was already like, he used to make t-shirts for himself and then me eventually. Right. And it was either with magic marker or, uh, like a spray paint, you know, um, and it was like the old, uh, you know, Bones Brigade type, you know, uh, font, right? Um, you know, it was like uh, with the, the X's where you'd have the periods, you know, like it, yeah. it, if you look at those old skate videos yeah, and exactly. like old suicidal, you know, uh, 
shit. That's that's that was the the look and feel that he was bringing out there. So we used to just be in my basement at my parents' house, and it was just him and I. And he had like I don't know, like three songs worth of lyrics. And eventually, we grabbed this other kid we knew that kind of reluctantly played bass, and we grabbed this dude who was a friend of a friend to play drums. And that iteration lasted for a little long, for a little while, and you know, just but it it kind of fell apart. And Chip and I were way more into it than the other two dudes. And then eventually, we 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 um, stumbled into these guys, uh, this group of kids from a different neighborhood from ours in St. Paul. And they were like, I don't know. They just had a younger, more like aggressive, hardcore vibe to them. I mean, they were, they were kind of like, um, they were little shitheads, you know, they were a little younger than us, but they were like, they had a little bit more energy and they liked to fuck with people. <laughs> so it was a lot of fun. And we really got to meet them because, it was uh we were told that one of the guys from that neighborhood got jumped by some rockers right the metalheads um at an arcade and now there was a, a challenge we're a, as stupid as it sounds this was really what was going down it was a meeting at the bridge in highland park and the punk rockers versus the metalheads were gonna rumble <laughs> and uh yeah, like we didn't really know these guys that well, but we knew of them. And like Chip and I, were like, well, we gotta fucking show up, you know. So we we drove out there, and it was really like six like kids from like twelve to fourteen, and I was probably fifteen at the time. And uh, we we just didn't know what was about to happen. And all of a sudden, on the other side of that bridge, you know, you're seeing like dudes that look like Hell's Angels, dude that's dudes that were dressed up like fucking like. Tommy Lee and Nikki Six from Motley Crue, like full grown men with like chains and fucking pool cues and shit. <laughs> and and uh, we just took off running and laughing and, you know, that kind of started up. So Blind Approach formed from kids we met in that neighborhood. And we were just young punks, man, looking to make hardcore music. Now, um, one of the cool things Siv said was that doing a band in Queens was easier because they had uh, basements to practice in. Yeah. So what was it like for you guys? Did you guys have to do the studio thing, or did you guys have some room to practice in? Like, oh, there, no, like studio. That wasn't even a concept for yeah. us. It was, it was, um, it was in different basements for a while. Then eventually, um, we uh, converted my uh, Marty's garage into uh, our our own little studio. Did you have the thing where you guys would practice and your friends would come over and check it out, like that kind of deal? Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, we worked hard though, man. We we you know, again, we grew up in Minnesota where you know it gets to like sub zero temperatures during the winter. Uh, so you know, my drummer, because uh, he, him and Marty lived in that neighborhood. He would show up an hour early and crank up all the electric heaters, uh, you know, before we'd get to practice because if you didn't, there was just no way we could do it. Um, but yeah, it was, uh, we'd, we'd have people hang out and, you know, drink beers and, you know, just be knuckleheads. That's awesome. Um, when you were thinking about the band, you were just going to play, did you have like the, I want to sound like, or did everybody kind of bring something to the table? Like early on, like bringing the material to fold. How did that work out? Yeah. I mean, you know, we were right 
at the cusp of that transition from kind of the more, again, you know, British GBH um, slash Boston, not LA, minor threat punk hardcore sound to what the Chromags were starting to bring, which was a very metal, tighter type of music performance, right? Um, along with Metallica, right? I mean, again, you know, I just say this because I, I feel I'm fortunate. I was around before Metallica was a thing. Yeah. And suddenly, you know, and, and at the time, you know, I was not friends with metalheads mostly because they always wanted to kick my ass. Right. And, and, uh, you know, plus we just thought, you know, a lot of the, like the hair metal shit that was corny and cheesy and, you know, punk rock is way more cool than that. But then all of a sudden you see these metalheads that are rocking GBH and discharge t-shirts and misfits t-shirts. And you're like, Oh shit, they get it. And their music fucking destroyed. So now it's like, yeah, I mean, why the hell shouldn't we be, you know, bringing some of what they're bringing to the table. And um, so that was really fucking exciting, not only to be a teenage kid in the music, but to be playing music and starting to really, you know, get this metal crossover thing to kick off. Did you feel elevated in the scene? I know that sounds like a weird thing, but some people said like, hey, well, now I'm in a band to kind of people, more people knew you, or were you kind of more well-known before you even started the band? No, it, it, it took time. And, you know, I, I do feel like we were humble about it. Um, like, but we were, what I'll say is we were proud of, of, of what we did. And we, you know, we really did it for ourselves. It's the true way to go about it, right? The spirit of this is what we, we dig and we're doing it. We're going to go up on stage and we're going to fucking bring it. And, you know, whoever digs it, digs it. Who doesn't, doesn't. Um, thankfully, people did dig it. And, uh, yeah, that's, we built a lot of relationships through that. Well, yeah, I mean, I imagine once those bands were coming through, you were able to be a part of so many of those bills, huh? Yeah, exactly. That that is that is an absolute fact. I mean, because you know, um, every every New York band that toured at that time, we opened for and built a relationship with, um, and every band that wasn't from New York that came through, right? Every band that came through. You know, we our relationship with First Avenue was, you know, yeah, put Blind Approach on as the opener. Um, and those were the days where, you know, it was like, it was still very, you had to be conscious of the anti-rock star vibe. Yeah. So, so you know, if there was a backstage, the headliner had to share it with the opening band. You know what I mean? You didn't, you didn't, uh, I mean, you didn't have to, but it was not a good look if you, if you tried to like be exclusive and kind of, you know, isolate yourself. Um, so yeah, we, I mean, we, we rubbed elbows with, with everybody, man, from, you know, Warzone, you know, Cro-Mags, uh, Gorilla Biscuits, um, who else came through? Youth of Today came through that I can remember. Um, uh, who were some of the bigger bands? I, you know, yeah, and, and even some of the smaller bands that would come through, like uh, Wrecking Crew from Boston. Oh, yeah. You know, got to be good friends with those dudes. So, you know, by the time I moved out to Boston for school, um, I already knew a lot of the guys out there. Um, so, yeah. Now, 
one last thing on blind approach real quick. We talk about me moving and going further. When you guys were going to put a record out, did you, who did you ask to like for the, the knowledge, like the way, the, the, the age of wisdom, like, how do we do this? Like, cause I know you guys released both your own records. So like, mm-hmm. who did, who did you reach out to, to get advice on how to do this? Yeah. I mean, we were friends with like, uh, like older guys in our neighborhood that, you know, they weren't like hardcore so much, but they definitely, you know, they liked punk rock and they thought we were cool, but you know, we were a little too young and rambunctious for them. And I'm, you know, I'm talking like 24, 25 year old dudes that were into their own sort of, you know, sub rock genre type shit. Uh, so, you know, uh, putting out vinyl was something that, you know, was certainly not unheard of by the time we decided to release something. And again, Chip just knew how to connect and network. And there's this dude, John Cass, who lived in our neighborhood who said, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, go to this studio and there's this pressing plant. You can, you know, just get it recorded and, you know, reach out to them and it'll cost you, you know, a couple hundred bucks and they'll ship it back to you. And, um, yeah, I mean, I remember getting, you know, like the first hundred pressings and sitting in Chip's living room and folding the 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 gate folds for the EP to fit into the plastic wrap that, you know, became the front and back cover and, you know, and then bring them to shows and sell them. I mean, it was, it was DIY, man. Nah, that's awesome. Also the artwork for that uh, record, uh, the first one, is so like it's it's so yeah. iconic for the time and then yeah record yeah. record equals to that like yes because obviously you mentioned playing with like the chromags and stuff and you and that's whole era and then 89 you got like the more the graffiti logo and all this yep. stuff. it's like yep. it's like it's an iconic thing and it kind of it's it's a real it's a real awesome cvp you guys touched in with that whole thing you know um it sort of kind of also shows you that by 89 hardcore is starting a little bit of homogenies happen and yes. a record and a record from California and New York and the Midwest is going to have some similarity looking and sounding there. That's a good point. Yeah, absolutely. So what was the impetus to get out to Boston? Was it just the, the need to play and the need to go further? Like what I, I've never seen you really talk about it, but I know you went out there and I know that was like a thing. So I always wondered like, what was the deal with that? Yeah. Um, Oh, I should mention Slapshot was another band that, you know, Love we, we became friends with and always, you know, thought was like, you know, I mean, they were, they were heavy on rotation, man. So, um, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm 19 years old. I graduated high school. It was always just an assumption that I'm going to go to college because that's just what you fucking do. Um, and I had no clue as far as what to do other than play music, like literally no clue at all. And there was, you know, there still is, it's called Berkeley college of music in Boston. And it, it is a true four year program where you, if you go through it, you, you walk out with a, you know, a true bachelor's degree, um, which is, you know, it's a, it's the equivalent of a bachelor's degree in fine arts that you could get at any other university. If you studied fucking, pottery or fucking you know literature or whatever you know it's it's um it's just a liberal arts degree um and that's what i went to go do so i i um i left st paul in 89 to start school in boston what was the I, tri- I, just to let you know i 
for me, I, I had told myself that I was, you know, like Chip actually wanted to keep the band going. And I was like, you know, man, I just, I don't think it makes any sense. I, I, I had felt like we had done like a lot of good shit. Like we played CBs twice. Yeah. You know, we had, we had met all of our, you know, all of the people that influenced us and that we really respected and had gotten some respect back from them. I mean, the first, the first time we played CBs was opening for nausea and Roger so was crazy. there. Roger's there. There wasn't a lot of people, but Roger was there. And probably about, you know, three quarters into our set, I realized Roger's standing there watching us. That's and so he, cool. he came up to us while we were breaking our shit down and introduced himself. Um, you know, which I always thought was like one of the classiest moves, you know, a guy like him could do. And we just talked and we already knew, we knew, you know, a lot of the same people and he had heard about us. So he thought, you know, he should check us out. And, you know, he was real complimentary. So, you know, after like that, it all went down. I'm like, I don't know. I just, I felt like it was, it wasn't like, oh, I'm done with hardcore. I'm done with punk rock. Uh, but just for me to put my own energy into playing that music, I just thought I'm going out to this school. I'm going to try to, you know, really, really become a master at the craft of musicianship and, you know, recording. I was, you know, looking to get into the recording engineer shit and I'm probably not going to have time for this. So, you know, I just, I, I wanted a, it was a mental separation for me. So I go out to Boston to start that. It was only a matter of time before I'm hanging out, going to shows, you know, with with the Wrecking Crew guys and Slapshot, and you know, my buddies from, you know, Minneapolis are coming out, and you know, then we're going to New York for a week, and you know, so it's like, I mean, hardcore never left me, and I, like I said, it wasn't exactly the point, but uh, it was an interesting, you know, phase for me because. And I was going to go all the way through. Like, you know, I wasn't taking summer off. I'm like, I want to get this done. Yeah, knock my, it out. Knock it knock out. It out and, go, and move on, right. And at the time, because I had no other plan, I, was, I just assumed I was going to go back to St. Paul and see what I could do with these, you know, skills I'm developing. Um, the first summer, third semester in, I was working at a video store uh, you know, video rental place. And my girlfriend at the time called me up and said, um, Roger from Agnostic Front called? I'm like, oh, yeah? She's like, yeah, he wants to know if you want to join the band and tour Europe with them. That's so fucking awesome. I'm like, and literally the first thing I thought was that's Chip and my other friends. They're trolling. They're, they're trolling. Yeah, they're running some bullshit. And then she gave me the phone number and it was a New York number. I'm like, well, okay. And it it didn't seem completely like impossible because again I had sort of a relationship. Number two, um, one of the guys who we were friends with from Minneapolis, who was the singer for this band Misery, which was like the Minneapolis nausea to our you know Minneapolis agnostic front, if you will, right? He wound up moving out and living with Roger and Amy because he sang for nausea. He joined nausea. So I knew he was out there. Um, and sure enough, he was the guy that told Roger, hey, man, if you're looking for a guitar player, that kid from Blind Approach, he lives in Boston now. You should ring him up. 
And that's exactly how it went down. So then how did you separate yourself from what you were doing in Boston to make that happen? I, I said, yeah, let's do this. Um, and I, you know, the, the, the one unique thing about Berkeley College of Music is it knows that, you know, the, the people there are musicians. So there's an expectation of you, A, not ever graduating, and it's just kind of a stepping stone for you to move on as a, as a professional musician and, and, or at minimum, go gig and come back. So they were really flexible about just, you know, yeah, okay, so just end this semester go do what you're going to do. You know, when you want to come back, come on back. And um, that was kind of the loose idea. So I finished out that summer semester. I was going back and forth between Boston and New York. Uh, Roger lived in Staten Island at the time, and I was practicing with those dudes. And then we, we uh, took off. We, we played a couple of shows in the Northwest. Actually, we did Cali first and then made our way up north to Seattle and then flew there to Europe. In that so what, September, what was your very first AF show feeling like? Like being there on the guitar side, not front watching, but how was it holding the guitar and being in agnostic front? Yeah, it was a trip, man. I mean, <laughs> it was a trip going to the rehearsal. You know, like uh, I had I had talked to Roger, you know, a couple times, and and uh, you know, so now it's the the weekend's coming where I'm gonna go you know, to a rehearsal. And uh, he put me on the phone with Vinny to uh, meet up with him in the city. And Vinny told me, you know, he broke down the, the, the subway uh, stop that I should get to from uh, Penn Station. And so I, you know, I got my guitar, I got a backpack, I fucking get, a, I, I take a, I think I took a train probably. I get to Penn Station to get on the subway and I get off at the BDF. It was the Broadway Lafayette stop, which was around the corner from his apartment in Little Italy on Mott Street. And then I'm waiting there maybe five minutes, and Craig and Vinny roll up with their guitars in hand, and we get back on the train, and we head to the Staten Island Ferry. That's so you know? fun. Cool. <laughs> and, and, you know, um, yeah. And then we, we, we get into that rehearsal studio, and I meet Willie, who uh, – I already, you know, knew through other people because one of my good friends from Minneapolis wound up uh, living with him for a little while in New York. Uh, so we both kind of felt like we knew each other when we literally met for the first time. And I mean, the fact that I knew the songs real well. And I mean, if there's anything I do feel confident about in life, it is playing hardcore music <laughs> like, like that's one thing i just like i don't know why but i feel like i can do it well um and I, I i just i don't know i felt comfortable enough to fucking plug my guitar in and start playing the set with them and clearly they also felt like all right this guy he can definitely do the job and it just worked man so our first show was in denver i think um and yeah, it was it was a trip. It was a trip. It was kind of a blur. But uh, and these were these were first times. Now that you've been to these places, you never traveled out that way before, right? That's correct. Yeah, and it, it, it took me a minute, man, because um, like in those days, the song, like the song was everything was really really fast and kind of like hyper almost, and uh, you know, like I I had to really kind of concentrate. Like I was focused 
on executing the songs on the guitar, like probably more than anything else. And Roger even used to kind of bust my balls and be like, bro, like, like, do you have any energy on stage? Like, can you like look like you're having fun at all? And I'm like, <laughs> I mean, I'm, I actually am having fun. I'm trying, but like you guys play fucking fast, <laughs> you know? No, I mean, that's an excellent fucking way to get broken. Especially. So you guys go from those shows right to Europe. Yeah. And this is the Europe that I love talking to people about because yeah. it's not, well, cause it's not, you know, it's not MAD tour bus Europe. No, it's fucking squats. It's, yes. So I, I'd love to get your perspective being a, you've now lived in the Midwest. You, you live in Boston, which is, has the same climate as fucking Minneapolis sometimes. Yep. yep. But like, what's the perspective here dropping into, you know, uh, at that time, Jesus Christ, we're barely. What do you? Is this ninety? Is ninety. This yeah, this is ninety. So you know, we're still talking about the walls up, brother. Or is the wall yeah, down? There? Yeah, yeah. The wall's still uh, up, right? Yeah. No, the walls was the wall down in eighty seven or something like that. Um, I can't remember. I'm not. Totally I think sure. it. I think it had I'm just come down. Know. Yeah. Well, I'm with you. Um, because oh, yeah, I remember. Yeah. I remember David Hasselhoff with that that jacket that lit up on the on the wall singing when it was a big ceremony to break the thing. Yeah. Down. Cause yeah. Cause Reagan was out of office. So yeah, the wall was down. So it was only okay. not down long. So was there still like the weird cars from the communist shit on the side of the yeah, road? Like, sure, sure, I sure, always yeah. see people talk about like, Oh, here's the communist knockoff. And then like, yeah, obviously we didn't go over till into the two thousand. So what was Europe like after <laughs> with all this, uh, weirdness happening? Yeah. I mean, it, it, um, it was it was pretty intense for sure. I mean, it it had sort of, you know, not everywhere, but you definitely were in areas that felt more bleak and kind of gray. Um, that had that kind of Eastern European, you know, stereotypical communist vibe to it. Um, and when I say communist, I just say that because that's that is I suppose the literal term that was sort of responsible for this. But um, you know, it's not like a political position on my part when I say it. I'm just saying that, you know, however you want to label it, it was understood that there was some oppression there. And there was a lot of things that, you know, people didn't have access to. And it was, it was, um, you felt it. Um, and then it, it was also very political. Like it was, it was very political. Yeah, the um, punks, the punks were very into what you guys thought about everything at that time, right? Absolutely. I mean, when you showed up as an American, you know, you were going to be, um, you know, people were going to stop you and they were going to want to have a conversation and they were going to want you to have some type of response to a lot of gripes that people from the international perspective had about America, you know, in the international realm. Um, you know, and let's face facts, America has been responsible for some fucked up shit around the globe. Um, and, you know, I get it, but, you know, our attitude, which is legitimate, was, listen, man, what, what do you want me to tell you? I'm a, I'm just a, a guy that plays in a hardcore band in, in America, and if you think about it, we're the guys that have been singing against our own government. We don't need you to try to remind us or tell us that, you know, you like our government less than we do we get it we're all singing the same thing here um but you know they they wanted to be very literal and very specific um 
And there is a distinction between like sort of like a social type of um, act, active, you know, um, what am I looking for? Um, being a social activist versus a, pol a political one, right? Yeah. We weren't waving a political flag. We weren't, we weren't promoting any one party or anything of that sort. But, you know, we were talking about justice on the streets for the people who are just, you know, the working Americans and, you know, fuck the rich and, and the people that, you know, are making it harder for all of us, you know, united and strong. We unite against it's us versus them. I, you know, to us, that was a given. But in Europe, you kind of had to take a political stance to prove it. Um, and it didn't help that, you know, Gnostic Front obviously had that skinhead association and in europe you know skinhead was much more assumed to be associated with that white power not neo-nazi thing yeah um, especially with a lot of the firms in germany and stuff like that sure. they had like a heavy leaning towards it it yeah. definitely it definitely had to make and, and and it shows like you guys not only had to be agnostic front but you also had to be ambassadors for like right, exactly. That's the word I was looking for. Correct. Yep. That's what people expect you to to do when you're there. Um, and you know, in hindsight, I, I can understand how they, you know, all the things that they went through and that what led up to them having that sort of feeling and wanting to get, you know, some type of response from us on those types of things. Um, but at the time, you know, it was very quick to being like, you know, fuck you motherfuckers. You know, you, we're, we're here to play shows and, 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 you know, build, you know, some friendships here, but you know, if you ain't feeling it, then whatever. But this, the shows were big and, the, and, you know, for all that I'm talking about now, there were a lot of people there that didn't get hung up on that shit. And, uh, so we did meet a lot of good people as well. Not everybody was hung up on it. But a lot were. It just sounds like, from your perspective, like that was something that stuck out because I don't think Americans really thought that deep into it because we weren't living, we weren't un living under that iron curtain for a minute, you know. Uh, agreed. Right. So, do you, was it MAD who did you guys, or was that just no. a random tour? See that that's the other thing. Um, you know, there was sort of a, a a beginning of like a tour booking thing, but it wasn't. Well, it, it was no it. it, it it was the touring agency that nausea used. Oh shit. So we're talking straight squats and dogs. Yeah. So it's really old. All right. It's the I real mean, literally. Yeah. yeah, literally. And, and, you know, and, you know, again, respect to nausea and, and that punk rock scene that really identifies with, you know, what they think is the right way to deal with problems in the world. And that's, you know, this political type of stance, um, so respect, you know, but um, it, 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 you know, like everything, there can be a negative to that. And, you know, because we weren't, you know, they, they really wanted to just put us to the test to see if, if they could get us to respond in a way that was going to be like, we knew it. We knew you guys were the bad guys that, you know, all the rumors, you know, um, you know, tell us you are. Uh, obviously, we weren't. So they never really got that satisfaction. But some people tried to still paint us in that picture yeah i think it's just a, it's gonna stay because of the iconography and the and the legacy regardless but you guys have always figured out a way to navigate it and i know rogers talked about that in his book throughout the whole thing 
like yeah. how, how they had to navigate it. So coming back from Europe, what did you do? Like, how did it, how did it progress? Yeah, it, it was kind of slow at that time, you know, um, Hardcore as a whole had kind of gone through a weird transition at that time. You know, this was the start of the post-hardcore deal, right? Um, yeah, that was the... Were you, hip to, were you hip to oh, like the whole premise of like kind of towards the violence and CBs, navigating sure, right. people to ABC No Rio, right. and then people feeling like the aggression of hardcore had to be kind of mitigated, so they were trying different sounds. Were you were you hip to all that, or were you kind of in AF and Berkeley world and didn't really see that perspective? Well, you know, again, um, in Minneapolis, that's exactly what was going on. I mean, you know, th that skinhead beef. Uh, I mean, there were stabbings. There were, you know, dudes getting hit with bats. There were, you know, <laughs> arrests and hospitalizations and shit, you know? Um and and it was a strain on the scene and the clubs that would try to have shows and and, and keep bringing people crowds into you know uh you know just keep a scene together right it was so i was no stranger to it and yeah i just i knew new york was doing the same type of thing but it was at a much larger more extreme scale because there was a lot more i mean you know I, I wasn't there, but I know for a fact about the guns that would, you know, make appearances that shut CBs down for a minute and, you know, this, that, the other thing. Um, all that peaked just before I got there or, or actually did peak as I was joining the band, but I was isolated out in Staten Island. Um, so I wasn't in the city and I didn't really get to know a lot of the, the guys in the city. Uh, other than the guys that would come out to Staten Island that were old friends with AF, you know. Um, so all that. So by the time we came back to Europe, the scene was at a definite low point, and music started to change, right? You know, and I I, I got to use like Quicksand as a as a real literal example. Yeah, they were like the, they also were like the flag bearer too because of Wally and the people involved with that project. Like they really did set the tone for it. You know, I mean they 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 brought this new kind of vibe. You know, and it it I, in fairness to them, and I, it's important I say this because I know I've I've made similar comments in other interviews um, where I probably came across sounding like not a hater, but like, you know, having a beef sort of. And I, I, I had a beef with the people that I felt were acting as if hardcore never meant anything. And, Oh, you're still, you're still listening to that. You're still doing that. And I would literally come across some people like that. I'm like, well, why, what are you doing? You know what I mean? Like, like I, I think you can still enjoy a band like quicksand that is moving in this direction um, without, acting as if you know the shit that happened two years ago uh wasn't as equally important or doesn't still you know uh have relevance um so it wasn't the band but it was people in the scene that were kind of behaving in that way from my experience i uh i have a couple friends who were your age who have said very similar things like there was a lot of people quick to get rid of the shirts and 
throw off it and pretend like, oh, I can't believe you'd still be a part of this. So yeah, yeah. I, I, so it was. I don't. I don't see it as a beef. I see it as a perspective that a lot of people had. Because hardcore kind of gone and in the shift of like you said, like in this conversation, it was kind of punk. Then it got hard. Then it got skinhead. Then it got really fucking straight edge because the youth of the day. Yep. And then all of a sudden, everyone didn't like the violence, so they were kind of mimicking some of the um, the Seattle sound or the indie sound, which actually the SST Records kind of had a hand in pushing in the underground into like what would eventually be the mainstream '90s sound. Good point. Yeah. Yeah. And you're right. I, I, I probably was overlooking the violent, the violence as being something that some people just didn't want to contend with and who can blame them? You know, um, the other, the other band I remember that was kind of a standout that kind of like breathed a new sort of life and vibe into the scene was social distortion. You know, like I'm, you know, and I, I say this jokingly, but you know, you know, like on Monday, we're all skinheads. Suddenly, Tuesday, everyone's looking like they're cast members from Greece. Yeah. You know, um, which, which I just I I found kind of amusing and, uh, you know, wasn't wasn't what I was relating to at all. And again, you know, I mean, I knew Social Distortion back from the early era. I mean, Mommy's Little Monster uh, was a great record. Another State of Mind. I mean, they were you know, one of the OG bands that I, I just always thought was, you know, um, always worthy of respect and credit. Uh, suddenly they're doing this kind of new thing where, you know, it's got this Johnny Cash sort of rockabilly vibe to it. And that's cool. That's what you're into. I, you know, I, I, it wasn't my thing, but it was interesting how many people really, really like became so heavily attracted to it. And, like I said, everyone's like all of a sudden, you know, things changed dramatically, very quickly. And Agnostic Front Hardcore was kind of not as popular and exciting at that point. There was, I think I also had a record that came that like before the Heaven Hell record that was really big. Because I saw something similar to that where like you didn't really see well-groomed quaffed hair at some of the shows. And yeah. then you started seeing that and you're like, where the fuck is, and then you're like, Oh, it's a whole thing. In fact, uh, we talked about it at the, 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 the reverb show, but H2O playing a social distortion was like a complete weird confluence of like hardcore people. There was kind of hair people. And then some reason, some Nazis, like it was a weird, it was a weird time for that. And that was a couple of years later than we we're talking about, but yeah, they were, they really had a big ride. They uh, social sources had some of the best songwriting and Ness is an unbelievable frontman performer. So Great. I, yeah, it's like I, I I totally see it. And I actually think it's kind of an like when we talk about evolution of hardcore from punk and all that stuff. Yeah, there's going to be people that kind of get into that mode. It's a weird thing how a band or a group of bands can not mutate, but they could take their own branch of the, the music to something. Well, I mean, to both those bands credit. And again, I, I just kind of feel obligated to make sure that this is heard explicitly by me as I'm saying all this shit nothing but respect and appreciation i think quicksand is an amazing band i remember when we were recording one voice and we'd brought don fury you know into that studio at normandy in rhode island to um you know produce it and one of the more recent uh recordings that he was you know um using as a reference 
to just listen to and get his ears squared away in that studio was that first quicksand EP, which sounded phenomenal. Um, and it's like, you know, I mean, they really, you know, Walter and, and, and that crew, they really, you know, they brought something creative and unique to, to the genre. So, you know, a lot of credit and respect there. And same with, you know, social distortion again, Mike Ness, you know, he's an OG, man. He's an Orange County, you know, punk rocker out here. And I, you know, after living out here for a number of years, I, I've gotten to, you know, know a lot of the older heads out here and, you know, um, he's legit. He's, you know, he's, he's one of us, no question about it. Um, so it's just, you know, it was really interesting the way, you know, credit to him. He, he stumbled onto something that people really fucking resonated with, but it was very organic. I never thought it wasn't, it wasn't like some type of sellout move. You know what I mean? Well, it's, it's actually really interesting that you bring that up because we're going to start talking about like the evolution of agnostic front with you being involved. Yeah. And this kind of ties back into New York hardcore, you know, uh, from before they were arguing whether it was loud fast and you had the bands like the mob and stuff, who just played blistering fast urban waste and all that stuff. To, yeah. you know the middle of the the you know what do you, people will call like the classic era of hardcore agnostic front has always kind of led led the way in a lot of ways you know from that cause for alarm record which completely kind of turns some people in their heads because crossover is a term and mm-hmm. I, I weird now to see people use it as like a they almost use it as like a micro genre oh it's crossover but like you know you saw just I actually think it has more to do with Metallica and metal having some legitimacy and i and i I read in a previous article leading up to this where you were like metal was hard for me at first because it was all satan and shit and i couldn't buy into it but then when you heard metallica and some of these other metallic riffs that's when you bought into it i think that that's where hardcore people kind of legitimize some of the i mean it especially you're going to say it because of the passing of mike gibbons there were Mm. hardcore bands that were really utilizing that sound but putting yeah. it in a hardcore frame at that time. Yep. And so like when you start working on whatever's going to be next for agnostic front, yeah. you have to take agnostic front out of the eighties and put them in a perspective for the nineties. And did you think about that when you were starting to write that stuff? No. And it's, it's really interesting. You say that. And I, it, I'm not, it's not that I'm oblivious to this, but, um, you know, I, I, that would probably be a flaw on my side, I feel, is I, I feel I was still thinking 80s. Okay. Where, where, where bands like Quicksand, you know, I mean, again, God bless them. They were, they were, they were forward thinking. Um, you know, I was a little bit more status quo. Now, when you talk about Agnostic Front being the reference point, I wasn't 1984 victim in pain although i was like see to me that that was and still is agnostic front victim in pain is such a quintessential hardcore record absolutely and i i hate to get on this kind of soapbox if you will because i i feel like i can start to sound like the old guy you know all you kids you know if you don't know agnostic front victim in pain you don't know nothing you know like it's it ain't it ain't that it's it's um it is hardcore punk rock music uh it's one of a few that is just such that raw element 
um, that, you know, you could just, you feel the, the chaos and the energy and the I don't give a fuck and the fuck you um, that is really hard to just replicate without having that spirit just really intensely burning in you. And, and I always felt like, man, don't lose sight of that. And just the, 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 the choruses, the anthems, the, the, you know, they just, it just checked all the boxes, man. So no matter what, I always want to try to hold on to some element of what that record represents in any hardcore I play, like from then up until today. Yeah, I think, so it, that, I think you're more on the same page with you when you talk about this, these kids thing, because it is a, it is a vital record. Like it's a vital organ. Like if someone took victim and pain out of the hardcore equation in America, things don't happen. You know, it's kind of like, I, if you, that's a great if, way to put it. Yeah. If you, if you pulled that from the circuitry, hardcore shuts down because victim and pain is so raw, you know, and, and it's, it is powerful. I mean, and then songs and, like iconically, like, what you said about that building around the chorus, the songs were built around the song, you know, like around that moment. And that's a hardcore thing. It's not a metal thing. You're building around the purpose of everybody singing it and stuff. It's yeah. Awesome. I mean, you know, having the fast part for, you know, for the purpose of being able to drop down into the, into the breakdown, you know, and on the victim of pain record, those weren't like metal or even hip hop breakdowns. If you want to start talking mad ball, right. It was yeah. just a, a thumping, you know, thing that, undeniably everyone just you know responds to you know why am i going i mean that that chorus just brings everybody in um and why the fuck would you not want to just try to you know hold on to that formula to some degree i mean again respect for for those who find other ways to do it and i'm glad that others have found other ways and other components that to my ear, this still sounds like a hardcore band to me, but it sounds nothing like what Victim and Pain was or what I would do. But somehow it's there. So that's, you know, kind of the unique and interesting thing about hardcore is because you can't really define it as a musical style. No, it's a bastard son of a lot of different things. And then because different people were doing it at different times, they had their own take on it. But at that time, that's one of them big records that just gets popped up and becomes like a landmark for hardcore. Yep. So when you, when you guys get back, you were already thinking like we have to write or did that come later? I know Roger was having problems as well. So like, how did the writing process go when you guys started rolling on that? Um, yeah, Roger, um, Roger's a smart guy. And he's very, um, his work ethic is like some I picked up uh, being around him. You know, I mean, even though I was um, 20 at that time, you know, I still look back and think of myself as being kind of a kid um, and, and being in the presence of like him and his life experiences. And, you know, I mean, it's the cliche, you know, kind of taught me to be a man, you know, um, and he, you know, he wanted to move this band forward. He was very focused and driven to do that. So much so that before we left for that tour, he bought a Tascam four-track cassette 
um, little portable recorder. He bought these uh, uh, a Boss Doctor Rhythm drum machine that I was already very familiar. I was familiar with both of those th- both of those pieces of equipment, and these little portable speakers that all fit into this custom flight case that he had built. <laughs> and we took that on the road with us. And I'm like, bro, that's my wheelhouse. Like I I I have you know I've done full band demos on that type of equipment and spent a lot of hours you know just fucking around you know for my own enjoyment or trying to demo for my my band or what have you um and so i just cracked that thing open on the road and started jamming shit and uh he immediately liked the stuff i was pushing forward um so it it, it, we started off on a good foot and yeah but you know and and you know when we did that and then came back to New York after the tour. So we had a couple songs that were, you know, kind of taking shape. Um, and then, you know, we get back to New York and we're in Staten Island. And Staten Island is literally an island. Yeah. Right. And isolated from the city. And I just, I, I was not up to speed on some of the more contemporary things going on. And, you know, we were listening to, the same records over and over, some of which were newer, like Slayer, Seasons, Seasons of the Abyss was a big one on rotation at that time. You know, Suicidal, Lights, Camera, Revolution. Revolution. Yep. Um, those were the two more contemporary ones I can think of, but then everything else was just, you know, the standards. Uh, and even like, you know, like Craig, Craig was real big on Iron Maiden, uh, you know, and... Uh, I had not really spent a lot of time with them. And we were, we'd also just kind of talk about, you know, let's learn a few songs. So when we get to the studio, we don't just sit and look at each other trying to come up with riffs. We can jam a little and have some fun, you know? So we started, you know, kind of learning some classic Iron Maiden or Judas Priest and shit. So by the time it was all said and done, I mean, all of those influences are so clear to me when I listen to one voice. Um, but technically some of that shit was outdated. I mean, I, I, I'd say that that's kind of true. Now, going back all the way back when we talk about the love of Beatles and all that stuff, when you were learning music from that guy, did that stuff play into anything that you've ever done in hardcore? Not, not, not necessarily like the music style of the Beatles, like, you know, but the backing like the, of the, what the music, how it was built on, like what the chords, and the, stuff. the, 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 sh- and then technically I learned a lot of this to be even better at it through Craig. That's one of the, I'm going to give Craig a lot of credit right now. When we started writing songs, Craig was the guy who we'd play through something and he'd, we'd stop and he'd sit there and he'd just, he'd just sit there and chew on his fingernail and he'd just think and I'd just wait. And then he'd, he'd say something. Um, and he was, 99% spot on with like, okay, look, that part, I, it just, I think we should do this to it, you know? And it was also fun too. Cause he, he, um, he would use terms that, you know, like, uh, that riff, it needs more celery. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, or, or it's too forehead, too forehead. We got to break it up, you know? And like, I didn't, obviously didn't understand literally what he meant when he said it, but somehow it, it made enough sense to where 
I knew the vibe he was talking about. And he really helped me kind of master the, the, you know, what I think is still important is the crafting of the song, the different parts and how they flow together. And yeah, I mean, if there's masters of that, the Beatles clearly would have to be in that category. And I'm not to hear, I'm not here to say I'm, you know, a Lennon or McCartney, but uh, I'd say that, you know, focusing on making the song is a big part of what I do focus on. Were when you were in the studio, what did you feel like when you were putting these songs out? Were you happy with them? Was there a contention? Was. was there a I contention because it was going in a vibe, a direction that wasn't exactly what to, that hardcore was at the moment? Like, was that even cognizant of your mind at the time? No. Or not really? No, I, I, I didn't know. I didn't know what people were wanting to hear at the time. Um, I only knew what I liked and what I was having fun jamming out with you know these dudes um and i thought we played everything really well and you know we're we were we were putting a different a little different spin on agnostic front than what had been agnostic front prior right and um i thought it i i dug it i really did and and um you know it was just interesting I, People were not that excited about it when when voice, uh, one voice was initially released. It it was not it was not really heavily embraced. That's a very interesting perspective, considering where it's at today's in today's hardcore world. And I don't the it 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 seems like it's something that now by seeing people think it's one of the best records from the time of New York hardcore. It's interesting to know. So how did you react when it wasn't really well received? I was bummed. I was, I was, uh, you know, it just, um, I don't know. You know, it, it, it uh, it's not like I, it, it, it confused me. I, I wasn't, I wasn't expecting it. Um, and I wasn't sure where the gap was exactly like where, you know, well, what's missing? Like to me, I feel like it's all there, isn't it? Like what's why, what is not being put forth that people wanted versus what it is. And I'm still not sure I can even, if I have an answer to that, you know, uh, I mean, at the end of the day, the one thing I, I can absolutely say, it was purely organic. It was very sincere we weren't trying to be anything. We just were what we were and what we sounded like. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm always, I was, I was proud of that then. I'm still proud of that today. I'm, I'm grateful that today people do seem to really embrace it and appreciate it. Um, you know, I, it just, that's, that's just a nice feeling, you know? Um, so, it, you know, it's interesting. That's the way I put it, you know, after all these years passed, I, I do find it interesting. So what did you do? You, you did any of the touring for that or no? Yeah. 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 So you, so what was the crowds like considering that some people didn't enjoy it? Like, how was it? It, it, it wasn't great, man. It was, you know, and I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to call this out. Um, Cause I think it's, well, it's true. Um, you know, while we're, you know, kind of representing, you know, the old guard. And I, what I thought by putting kind of a, you know, 
a nice kind of newer shine to the product. Um, other bands were doing things that were definitely, you know, more ha had much more of a newer vibe and less of, you know, the attachment to the older generation stuff. Um, Biohazard was, you know, just starting to really, you know, become the band that we know they are today. Now, I'd, I'd known of them. I'd heard people talking about this band, you know, this up-and-coming band that their live show is pretty intense. And, you know, there were rumors about them, too. So they kind of had a little bit of a mystique about them. And we became friends with them real early on. Um, and I liked the, those guys a lot. And I thought, you know, as a band, they were, you know, they were still a little rough around the edges when I first met them. But clearly they were like, you know, they were they were great. And that was the type of thing that people were really responding to. And fuck, man, that was a hard thing to compete with, and especially in the live arena. You know? There's 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 a there's a few bands in over time that that I would say have made their presence felt in that way. One is biohazard in the early 90s for sure, and the other would be in the later 90s, and that was Hatebreed, where it's just like, holy fuck, you know? You thought your parts were heavy? You thought your band had some fucking, you know, had a breakdown that's going to get the floor moving? Well, go share the stage with Hatebreed now and see how that, <laughs> that works for you. <laughs> I mean, these, you know, I, I say that out of love and respect. I still think anything I've done can stand on its own, but you know, I'm talking about some people that made some real impact that I noticed. And, you know, it was impressive. See, I think, again, in this conversation, we talked a lot about the evolution of hardcore. And that's just like the next iteration. Like when New York hardcore kind of not disappeared, but when the CB shows sort of stopped, Brooklyn really yeah. did become yes, a yes. big place. For, and I've had a couple episodes where we talked about the You're right, like agony too, right? Life yeah, like agony. there's a it seemed like that was a great between the North Jersey shows and the, um, the shows in Staten Island and Brooklyn, a different sound became the encompassing flag yeah. for New York hardcore that was left because yeah. Yeah. as you said earlier, a lot of people had abandoned New York hardcore. So the people that were left playing it, it shifted greatly. And I could see biohazard really being, especially at that point, because they were really starting to grow. And I think also music was uh, starting to amalgamate more like you saw the, you saw the beginnings with that. Um, what's that? That um, because of Biohazard, it reminded me um, the Judgment Night soundtrack and the Onyx thing. Like, what would eventually be the precursors for like the Madball stuff? Is that hip hop sound started being more considered? You know, it was ne especially for New York people and probably LA people and people from urban and hardcore environments. It was impossible to ignore graffiti and hardcore, and or and and in hip hop, but metal had a harder time. Yeah, sliding it agreed. in, but by yeah. the by the by the time you're talking about Biohazard and the time you're talking about the record coming out, hip hop was slightly now being allowed to come into metal. It was it was finally allowed to be in the metal, so to speak, right? Yeah, I would agree with that, and and you're right. That was the distinction. It was it was you know it was a part of hardcore because and especially New York. I mean, you know, hip hop is you know New York is the birthplace the hip of hip hop. You know, as far as I'm concerned doesn't mean a lot of great you know early hip-hop didn't come out from other parts of the country but you know we all know of the new york hip-hop history 
And, you know, as early as like, um, you know, underdog had, uh, um, that's actually a good example. Underdog underdog had early influence. Um, you know, um, yo, what's up with that? Where the war zone went, you know, like that, the whole dialogue in the beginning of, of, uh, don't forget the struggle. Um, you know, leeway early on, you know, sick of it all. Fuck sick of it all with KRS one. I mean, you know, New York urban hardcore vibe that was embracing the urban fucking lifestyle that hip hop was also such a big part of. I mean, but to your point, yeah. Now you mix it in with metal. It's like, whoa, that's, you know, that was different. You know, that was, that was more shock for that for sure. So when we get back to the when we get back to the AF side of the story, did the band's morale drop or was it just business as usual? We'll grind through this. Like where did where did that whole thing go? We broke up. I remember, I know at some point it did, but what was it over the record or was it just a combination it, it, of things? It was it, it it at that point it felt like it had run its course. Was it a formal thing? Like did Roger call everybody up and go yeah. disbanding? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we played, we played, you know, there is that recording, uh, Last Warning. That was the last show. That was, that was, you know, fuck, what was it, January 93 at Seabees? And you walked, you walked into that knowing that. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was advertised that way. It was, Roger said it on stage. We knew that that was, you know, it was, that was going to be our last U.S. show. Uh, We were going to do. Uh, uh, last Europe run, Roger was moving down to Florida to um, get his Harley mechanic certification, um, and you know, then that was that was my, you know, I had to figure something out, so I went back to Berkeley. Uh, so I moved back to Boston to finish school. Um, that was my plan, and yeah. What was your What was your thought uh, in hindsight? Now looking back at that in effect show. Oh, to, the, me, the, to me, to me, to me, yeah, to the, the show that shot the video for. To me, that's like a, another like landmark moment for New York hardcore. But how did you feel playing it? Because I've heard things that I'm not gonna put on air that like kind of like made it a little bit weird for some people who played. The crowd was a little different. Like, like so I, I'd like to get your perspective on it. Yeah, it was. Um, it was a lot of fun. Um, it. It it uh, I thought we had a good show. Like I thought the crowd showed us a lot of love. Um, you know, tough tough spot having to you know come out on stage after everybody else played. Like any band, you know, would kind of has to muscle through. Uh, but still, it, it was a good show overall for us. Um, it was that was my first New York show, right? Really? Yeah. I mean, with with Agnostic Front anyway. Yeah, yeah, no, that's what I meant. Like, that was your first time on stage with them in New York. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I I was, um, I was more focused on what's about to happen. Is this gonna, you know, how is this gonna be versus enjoying it in the moment? You know, when I can remember, and you know, I out of all the shows I played with that band, that was one where I kind of felt a little pressure. That I put on myself, you know, don't fuck up. You know, you want if I find any show to be good, you want this one to be good, um, type of thing. But um yeah, and I, I didn't, 
you know, I didn't know a lot of the younger cats yet at that point, right? My my group circle of friends was the older crowd, the older AF, you know, circle of friends and Murphy's Law, and, you know, um, the that older generation. So, you know, I as I got to know like Hoya and and a lot of, you know, Isaac and a lot of the younger guys, they tell me about, you know, how rest in pieces had to get shut out, shut off early and, you know, them trying to fucking break the barricade down and like people like getting pissed off about it. And so there was that younger crowd element that probably wasn't as super excited about Agnostic Front as they were with some of the undercards. Yeah, I just remember that video just being such an iconic moment, not just because of the bands, because it was like a VHS representation of Agnostic Front. And Roger looks so fucking crazy with the long hair. And it's just like and 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 I, I went back through it for YouTube's sake. And you were saying about how fast and you're watching the drummer so fast and you're in like your own little corner. Yeah, kind of like yeah. you just it looks like you're just trying to hold it down. Like I just gotta stay I'm just trying in. to keep I'm just trying to keep up, man. Let me just keep up here and then you know, hopefully that's good enough. For sure, yeah. That's fucking awesome. Um, I want to pee real quick. Do you want to take a break for a second? Yes. Do you... Uh... Yeah, I think at that moment in hardcore, a lot of shift, a lot of shift was happening. And you for see sure. it, you see it in the Roadrunner sense where they started getting these bands together, you know, like you saw the signings and the stuff. And um, you go back to Berkeley or was that like a, was yeah. that ever happened? And then, so what were your intentions? Like, how did that, how did you play that out in your head? Well, um, it's kind of similar to me leaving from Minnesota to go to Berkeley the first time, you know, um, I ran a course with, um, with the band probably time to try to, you know, do something a little different now. You know what I mean? It was never, oh, you know, fuck hardcore, hardcore sucks, or, you know, um, it was just, it's at some point, you know, you just, you kind of realize, why am I going to put so much energy into something I'm not getting as big of a return as I think I should, you know? And finance was one of it. I'll tell you, I never made good money an agnostic front. Um, and obviously it's not about money, but it was hard to fucking pay bills. I couldn't pay rent. I couldn't, you know, I mean, I was always, you know, one step behind financially because um, I didn't have any good connections in New York that I had established like a trade or anything, you know, all the other guys that grew up there, they had those connections. Um, and so, um, you, again, the only thing I really fucking knew to do was play music. So I guess the band's done. Let's go back to school and try to, you know, get some type of path going. Um, and it was probably six months later that, you know, well, the 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 um, one thing I'm I'm kind of overlooking or not not mentioning is the fact that the last tour in Europe we brought Freddie out with us, and he had to finish it right. No, uh, that was that was uh, that was a U.S. tour. Okay, that was that was when we toured with Obituary, which was a fucking hell of a great time. But uh, it was because of that, right? So Freddie did have to finish that tour, and um, that he really came into being what you could tell was a 
a damn good front man just through that experience right um and so you know and our first european tour it was interesting a lot of people when they come up to us they had the madball seven inch where's freddie where's freddie madball madball you know that just you know from that first live at cb's people really just picked up on that right yeah uh, oh you know sorry ain't here you know so that always stuck out in roger's mind yo if we go again we gotta fucking you know bring this kid um so that last tour we roger you know had the fucking smarts to say let's let's do another madball seven inch which was dropping many suckers let's put that out and you know have a little something to tour off of for madball on that last af tour in 93 cool so we had dropping many suckers done we did europe and it was cool now i'm back in berkeley and you know i mean these are my brothers i'm still looking to you know just hang out with them from time to time let alone why not play a show or two you know no no fuss no fucking pressure we're just gonna fucking play fucking dumbed down stripped down hardcore that is dropping many suckers on a weekend here or there and have fun and that was that was what we did uh you know every couple weekends we'd get together and you know of course now things are starting to kind of take shape where you know bands like 25 to life are starting to happen crown of thorns is starting to happen you're starting to get this sort of you know not second wave i don't know what number it would be but another new wave of younger bands that madball is actually peers with at this point right um and so six months into that cycle i get a call from i think freddie or maybe willie yo howie abrams who was our a and r guy for yeah. one voice at relativity is it roadrunner he wants to sign us and do a record <laughs> fuck and i i was really apprehensive about doing it um not because i didn't want to play music with these guys not because i i didn't think it could be fun is you know it's a commitment you know what i mean like like if you're gonna do that that means you gotta put the time and energy into writing the songs that are going to make a good record and get the recording done. And then if you're going to go that far, well, you know what's next, you're going to have to fucking tour. And I yeah. thought I was kind of moving past that cycle, you know? Well, like when you to touch back on what you said about the not having the finances at 30 years old, it's hard to skate on punk rock money. You know, you got to start thinking about what's next. And so I could, I could see, I could see the two paths here. I could stick to what I know and try to build something up or I could fuck with the band stuff no more. I can understand that. That that was that was essentially it. Now it's funny you say that age. Um because I at the time I thought I was older than I was. I was only twenty four at that time. Um, which when I look back at it now, I feel like I was still acting like a little kid. Um, and when I see twenty-four-year-olds now, at my, you know, me being yeah, they're like children. Kids, they're like little kids. Yeah. Me being fifty-three, it's like fuck, you know. But <laughs> yeah. you know, technically, I was supposed to be an adult. I should have had my shit together and at least could fucking pay rent, you know. Yeah. Um, um. So yeah. Did you see anything 
and it, and, I, and I, we didn't talk about it, but you mentioned it and it had me pop up. Did you see anything from the obituary crowd that made you think that hardcore had any kind of viability in the death metal thing or no? Um, yeah, sort of. Um, what I'll say is it opened my eyes up to death metal, number one. And everybody on that tour were fucking such class A gentlemen. I mean, we were, you know, sort of the outliers. And, you know, Obituary being the headlining band who fucking killed it every night. Um, and they owned the crowd. I mean, you know, my my favorite kind of reference point there is, you know, we'd play Denver as an example. A big old school skinhead scene. And when we get up on stage, the skinheads are just... I mean, they're just being merciless to the metalheads. You know what I mean? Like literally grabbing dudes by the hair and just socking them up and dancing in between. Yep. You know what I mean? It, it it looked like a like, you know, it was a it was a full scale fucking riot to music. But then obituary would come on, and they would be too busy dancing to even you know think about anything else because obituary was just that badass. And um, I learned a lot from watching obituary like as far as like music wise they made a huge impact on me the other bands not so much musically but they were great guys that really you know treated us with a lot of respect and we you know we became friends with i mean it was malevolent creation cannibal corpse agnostic front and obituary and we just had the best time hanging out with all those dudes um but no we didn't we didn't really win over the death metal crowd. Yeah, I could see that. I know um, that's actually when I first started getting out of the bigger concerts, though I'd still go to bigger concerts, but I was going to the death metal shows in the early 90s. Like I was 11 and 12 years old going with the older teenagers, and we were in the death metal, and that's how I got – that's how I found hardcore and all that shit was from Headbangers Ball and that. Yeah. And we had Nazis here that were – terrifying and then when i was i seen a year later i seen sick of it all biohazard and it's probably a lot of your new york friends on stage threatening to beat up the nazis and we were long hairs going <laughs> and we're going people beat up the nazis that's great like because we yeah. were going to death metal shows and all we saw were nazis beating up death metal people and we're like yo these dudes are fucking terrible oh, fuck <laughs> that was yep. like so that's like my I, I wanted to touch into that because that was like my experience was coming from hair metal. My mom got me into thrash metal and then when death metal came, I absorbed that and I had older friends, three, four years older. So they were like, let's go to these shows. Let's go to these shows. But it was all white power people and long hair is getting beat up. So it's funny you said that because that was like the first show experience, not concert experience for me. You know, it's, it's funny you talk about all that because, <clears throat> you know, I look like I, like I said, you know, Hardcore, you know, my experience with hardcore, there was a lot of fighting. There, there definitely was. It didn't start out that way, but it definitely evolved that way. Um, and, um, you know, sometimes, you know, as you know, right, sometimes it, it's justified. Sometimes, you know, you look back, you're like, ah, that probably shouldn't happen, you know. But whatever the case is, it was sort of an understood thing. But it, it, 
my my evolution into that kind of realm was being the skinny punk rock kid that would get beat up by the metalheads. So for yes. me to see those skinheads, now it's like, oh shit, it never occurred to me. Yeah, what the fuck? Toughen up, fight back. You know what I mean? That's way better than just being the punk rock that gets beat up by the metalheads. So then there was a time where it was like, yeah, yeah well, fucking metalheads, you guys had your your time now, you know. It's our time now. So there was a little bit of that, but um, yeah, I wasn't a big, big advocate of, uh, you know, as I got older, I wasn't a big advocate of the, you know, hardcore against the metal guys because we were all friends at that time. At least I thought. Now, when you were doing this thing, were you also still thinking about the career part from music? I mean, yeah. You know, on paper, I was a professional musician. Yeah. I mean, you guys recorded you, know I mean? you guys recorded at Normie's Sound too. That was like a big deal at that time, was it not? Yes. I mean, so we, you know, you, you had we, to learn we, a lot just being there. I did. Um we you know, if, if you really broke it down, we were signed to a very well established um it was still an independent label, but it was a large scale independent label that had major distribution you know, with an advertising budget, um, a recording budget that would, you know, foot the bill for a recording studio that was $1,000 a day. You know, we'd, we'd master at like the hit factory or master disc. I mean, I remember, I think it was Demonstrate My Style that Michael Jackson was at master disc the same day we were there. Holy shit. You know I mean, that, that was a high level, you know, fully professional facility that you know my music is being mastered at to be then pressed and distributed worldwide i'm signing contracts for what that's worth you know what i mean it's like yeah. on paper i'm this fucking professional musician and i wasn't making a fucking dime and it yeah. drove me nuts yeah you're you're 20 you're 23 or 24 you're on this label actually i remember because i i got all those metal magazines yeah that you would see in the back, you'd see like the blue grape stuff and you'd see the road mm-hmm. racer before it became Roadrunner and all that. Mm-hmm. And that was like the first time it's like, you start seeing some of these names pop up, but yeah, it was like on paper to someone like a professional, like, Oh, you're in the game. Yeah. But the money wasn't really, wasn't trickling in. No, and it, it, it was, it was frustrating. And um, again, I wasn't trying to seek stardom. I'm not, I'm not, you know, trying to be this rich and famous, you know, person. I'm just hoping I can make a living, you know, and play the music that I enjoy. That was that was really the the goal. Um, so yeah. So so where did you go from there? Like, what did you? Well, like, what's where's the story go in perspective? <clears throat> so. Um, this was, you know, Hoya joined Madball after Agnostic Front broke up because Roger moved down to Florida and Roger yep. played bass on Dropping Many Suckers and wrote the music. You know, we wrote the music together with him. So now he's gone. We want to keep doing, you know, this Madball thing, have fun. Freddie had really, you know, that's when Freddie moved up to New York and, you know, had befriended all the 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 dms you know younger generation kids and um so i'm i'm getting to know these dudes and 
you know, it's a great time. Um, and I knew Hoy was in Demise, and uh, I, I really I thought Demise was really cool, but I didn't I didn't get to see a lot of them because um, they you know they they broke up not too long after um, I met Hoya, and when he joins Madball, I'm like, okay, he's probably going to be good enough to play these songs that you know we we do off of this EP because they're not you know there's not a lot to it um but i don't know what he can bring to the table beyond that right and it wasn't about you know i need him to impress me or do anything super special but you know i just need someone that i can feel good writing a full record with because it's hard you know what i mean and i don't want i don't want it to suck <laughs> right so you know, he might be a good guy, but can he, you know, musically, where is he at? And um, he fucking called me up and he, he's like, yo, Maddie, I, I think I got a new song for the record. I'm like, I'm always here, man. And it was just, he just sets the phone receiver down and he plays the chorus for Set It Off. Oh, and I shit. was like, <laughs> I was like, yo. And I mean, stylistically, it was like nothing I would ever come up with. And I was like, I mean, you know, I don't, for anyone that's a fan of Madball, I don't think I need to explain any further how that hit me and how, you know, uh, important that song was to the band that also showed me that this guy can write some riffs. So I was so, so fucking happy and excited that, um, I had this guy as a partner now and um you know um I had a great time writing that record with him and Willie and Freddie obviously um so it was a fun time man you know and then we did our first European tour but we were still kind of like the underdogs in a way we weren't you know Biohazard or Life of Agony um who were I mean just crushing it at that time and uh, you know, it was it was um, I don't know. I I was still kind of skeptical about you know, well, where is this really going to go? You know, and and how much more time and energy can I and should I put into this before I gotta just say, guys, I gotta figure out you know some career path to make to pay rent. That's <laughs> the bottom line. Um, and, you know, truth be told, that was ultimately still the case by the time I left the band in 98. I mean, you know, I, I don't know what people assume or, you know, um, what I can tell you is that it's a very different game today. And I'm very happy for my brothers who are still in the game because I think they're doing much better than we did when I was a part of it, you know, financially. Right. And again, and again I, I, I feel kind of awkward if I feel like I'm harping on it, but it's just a, a factor of life. You know what I mean? If you aren't making a living, life is pretty fucking frustrating. I think and when these kind of conversations get to this, there's a either a misconnection or a conflation where money is the the drive, where it's not the drive, but at a certain point in time, unless you have rich parents or a fucking an oil well in your backyard money's the thing that makes everything happen for adults you know it buys the food pays the bills you're not yeah. exactly going to exist 
without it. And when you're when the majority of your time is put into any kind of thing, at some point, if you don't see a return on it, you still need to go out there and get some of that kind of money. We don't live in the we don't live in a beautiful world where money just comes in your uh, your door every every week for doing nothing. It's it's a it's a it's a thing that sometimes doesn't get rationalized. And it's great that you touched it way back on MMR MRR because they were the kings of denigrating bands for needing to make money. You know, it's like right. And right. also at the same time, hardcore had a couple different people who were booking agents, but for the scale of Manball at that time. Like um, I seen you guys for the first time on that downset doggy dog tour. Yep, and that was like to me one of the most classic hardcore shows I've ever been a part of, just because that was a perfect time, perfect era. But you know, you're playing a venue that maybe hold 175 people. When a door price, I think a door price, people are like, oh man, it's nine dollars. <laughs> like, what the fuck are we talking about? That's not even a thousand dollars if the show sold out. Like, there's nothing. It needs to be said that when you're talking about this kind of stuff, it's not irrational. And you're not talking about, I need, I, you know, like you're not talking about a car note. You're not talking about all this other shit. You're like, Hey, I, I got to get money coming in. Hardcore was in a weird spot from the, actually from the time you left and joined uh, Agnostic Front because the promoters were getting shadier. The metal promoters would fuck bands over yep, or they yep. had relationships with agents where they'd say, Dude, you know, we lost money on your band, but we made our money with Testament. That's the only reason why we even did your fucking show. Like, hardcore bands are not today aware of walking up to a promoter at the end of the night at a club, of all places, and being told there's no fucking money. Yeah. You know? Oh, believe me. <laughs> and and to touch, I, yeah. we touched on this with in the Tim Boar episode where it was people like Tim and people from the scene that had to start policing and booking the bands because they weren't getting treated on the same level as the metal bands. I yeah. always say this. I always say this perspective for people who don't really understand that end of it. Well, man, you know, thank you for mentioning Tim Bohr. Shout out to Tim, man. And he's a Philly guy, right? I, mm -hmm. I, it's, it's been a long time since yeah. I've uh, had the pleasure of speaking to, to that guy, but um, he was great back in, in those early Madball days when we were really starting to, to, you know, get our fucking touring game together um you know one of the things for me was i'm not i'm not a business guy can i be sure but i mean hardcore to me is i want to play the music i want to play the hardcore shows i want to you know i do it for being into hardcore not to fucking turn it into a a business that now becomes like you know i'm treating it like a business and that you know if that if that's where i'm at i'm just gonna go get a different job i'm gonna get a job and and focus on a business for that and keep my hardcore separated from that if that makes sense welcome to my life <laughs> yeah well you know <laughs> pouring concrete and just hoping shows happen it's it's for those exact reasons you understand you know what i mean and you understand that implicitly yeah so i found something about the hardcore scene at that time that like ties in really well with a lot of other guests you were present for like an epic moment in hardcore that wasn't in america okay dynamo 95 <laughs> yep 
and I've had a I've had the doggy die doggy dog guys. I've had biohazard guys. I've had so many people on this. I love talking about this because all we have is the videos now. Mm-hmm. Dynamo ninety five. Give me the rundown for you. Um. Yeah. Okay. So I forget who within our peers had played the Dynamo the season before, but somebody had. Um. And so, you know, we we knew of the Dynamo Festival as a thing, and we knew it was huge. And we knew it was like, like, you know, it was pretty much understood as the biggest festival you could imagine. So we were excited to be a part of this in 95. Excuse me. And, uh, you know, there was some heavy, like, anticipation um, building up to it. Um so, and but you know you never really know what to expect until you're you're there, right? And you know the fact is, anything we had done prior to that um, wasn't anything close to the scale that that Dynamo Festival was. Um, yeah, we'd been on bigger stages, you know, in some of the bigger cities. Um, you know, and you know, like when I was on Little Bituary tour, we played you know larger venues and you know full you know good PA systems and that type of shit. So it's not like I was completely green, obviously. But I mean, I I think they said it was one hundred twenty thousand people there that year. I mean, the videos look like it could be. It's so fucking and, big. And, and we went on early that day, actually. So. You know, it was it was actually a little. It wasn't it wasn't full throttle for you know the headlining, you know, like but what it became for the headlining slot. But it didn't matter. I mean, and you know, we were we were in that mindset of uh, I mean, this is this is the era where this was one of the I loved this um, because we did we wore New York hardcore. you know, we, we waved that flag proudly, right? I mean, we were kind of on a mission in those days to get up on that stage. And, you know, in case you're not aware, we're telling you right now, we are a New York hardcore band, and this is how we do it. You know, and the way the way Freddie would start out most of our sets is, you know, we'd just get up there, we'd get our shit dialed in, and Freddie would just say, we're Madball from New York City. And then just boom. You know, and I just, I just, I, that just, just give me, get, that would get me kind of just in the right headspace, right? So it just kind of gets you prepared for any reaction, good or bad, because not everybody got what we were doing even then. Um, but we didn't care because we, we, you know, we, we felt it, right? So that was the mindset getting up on that stage. But that stage was huge. I didn't have cords long enough to reach the front of the stage, even with my, like the two pedals I was using at that time, I had to, you know, just extend the cords all the way as far as I could get them to come close to the edge of the stage. Um, You know, we, we, uh, we started the first song and I think it was the third song in Freddie came fucking clod hopping to my side of the stage and kicked my pedal. And it pulled the cable out and it went, went flying like 15 feet. You know, that happened. Um, you know, Freddie, I remember he went to, the, I think there is video. Have you seen Freddie fall off the stage? 
No, I actually I have to look for it. <laughs> I see yeah, video. There's a there's videos of him wearing a business shirt, and it yes. looks like later on he's wearing like just a wife beater or something. He must have ripped yeah. the shirt. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, you know, we, we were just really we were the underdogs that day. There was no no debate about that. But like I said, we kind of wore we, we, we that was you know something we had with pride, um, and uh, you know Freddie. Freddie went to the edge of the stage to try to get people to sing along. And I think someone came up behind him and it, he wound up tumbling into the crowd. Um, and so, you know, we had to figure out a way to get him back up to the stage because it was high. Yes. You know, that thing looks so massive, man. Like it's... it was, it really was, was fucking huge and ridiculous. But, um, you know, for all the stupid little glitches that went down, um, we had fun and I think, you know, it was a really good representation of who we were as a band. And thankfully a lot of people responded to it. So, you know, it was, it was a good day. I did just look up that. It, I think it was sick of it all in life agony the year before. That's how you guys might've known about that. It. That sounds right. Yep. Yeah. It's, it's just, it's a moment in, it's a moment that American hardcore people at home didn't know, but as the internet has taken presence as like, a big deal in how kids know about hardcore now. It seems that um, Dynamo is always like, dude, you see those Dynamo videos on YouTube? And I'm like, how did, and then I started looking, I'm like, holy fuck. I've never sat through entire sets, but I, I they'll come up sometimes because algorithm, I'm always amazed about just the size of that festival. I mean, it, it, um, it, on, on one level, it did make me feel like we were real small. And I mean, we were in comparison to the overall scale of that whole production, um, you know, and it, it, I, you know, I, I was impressed with like, you know, bands that you could tell were comfortable and real experienced at that larger scale because they, they, you know, they, they took up the space and they, they kind of, you know, they sat well in that scale of production. We looked like a bunch of just knuckleheads scratching and clawing through it, but it was fun. See, I, I think the perspective is also kind of like there's a rawness of you guys being up there, you know. Yeah, like, one hundred percent, it was very a, raw. <laughs> there's a there's a rawness of it, like fuck it, these dudes are in basketball shorts, they're just fucking doing it. Vinny's running around like a maniac, you know. It's fucking awesome. <laughs> it was fun, yeah. Um, I know we don't have a lot of time, so I just like to talk about just looking back at everything that you did. It just in that, just in this last conversation, man. I mean. There's entire, I don't know, maybe you do know. So, like, obviously there's bands like No no Warning and mm -hmm. bands that now sound like No Warning. And then there's probably bands that now sound like the band that sounded like No Warning. <laughs> so that moment in hardcore, whether it's, you know, the Agnostic Front stuff to the Manball stuff, you left a legacy for people to follow, like a blueprint. The way that we were talking about in the victim and pain status, you know, like the derivatives of what you worked on as you're sitting here and you're saying like, yeah, it was like 23, 24. I had to think about college or work and what you put on to the earth and in the ether, as they say now, reestablishes hardcore every couple of years. Every couple of years, there's a band that draws so directly from the well of like the earlier man ball or what would come later in the set and all stuff that it almost revitalizes it. And it's, I, I don't know if everyone's ever told you that, but in your own way, you have a blueprint 
alongside Hoya and Willie for writing that stuff, man. You know, I'd be I'd be lying if I said I haven't had people kind of share that that perspective with me. And every time that I, I hear somebody say it, I, I get you know, part of it feels a little awkward because I, I I still think of myself as being the guy who was the fan of Agnostic Front and you know the bands you know before the bands I was a part of and the bands I looked up to uh, when I was a younger kid um, and uh, you know in my mind I'm just trying to do what feels natural to me uh, based on all those influences and I do feel you know I, it's what I usually say is I really appreciate the appreciation you know, um, cause, cause, um, I get it cause I have such appreciation for, um, all the, you know, the influences of mine. Um, and that's, that's what I think is just so great. I mean, fuck man, I'm 53 years old and I still go to hardcore shows. I still play hardcore shows the majority of my close, close, close friends are from the years I've spent going to hardcore shows and being in hardcore bands. And it's a, it's a level of, you know, close relationship that, you know, I, I really respect and, and hold dear to me. So, you know, the point is this whole thing means a lot to me and I know how it, it's just great to know that it means a lot to other people too. Whether you like my bands or you like other bands, you know, just, you know, there's that connection there that I know very clearly that you have as well. Um, so, fuck, you know, I mean, at the end of it all, if, uh, you know, it just feels good. I, I, I'm going to share this with you and I've, I've shared it with a couple of people recently because it, it happened very recently to me. I was at, it was Madball and Biohazard um, at this uh, venue in Orange County called uh, the Garden Amp Theater. One of the coolest and venues to watch videos of. Have you, so oh, cool. have you been there? No, never been, but I watched the videos and I, like, I haven't seen a band yet play there that doesn't look so fucking cool. I take my sons there. Like, like we've, you know, we see hip hop shows there and, you know, I've played there a few times and you know, a lot of the bands that, you know, are close to me, I'll go see them. Uh, so it's, it's a good time. It's, we, we always have a good time there. And it was in between, um, bands. I can't remember. I think, um, I think Ignite had just got done playing and Madball was going to be up next. So I'm on the side of the stage and, you know, Freddie just went to go backstage and get his stuff together and, my wife and my youngest son were a little off to the side from me and just kind of going through that transition between bands type of thing. And this dude walks up to me, I'm guessing in his early thirties, maybe had kind of like a, like a biker vibe to him, you know, maybe a little jailhouse even, you know, kind of a, what you'd think of as a Southern California kind of, you know, biker type of dude. Right. Um, and he just walks right up to me and he says, Matt Henderson, I'm like, yeah, hey, what's up, man? And he was he was a bigger dude too, right? So I'm not exactly sure what this guy's, you know, agenda is. And he said, I just want to 
I just wanted to come up and meet you and say thank you. I said, okay. And he said, you know, I mean, I, I, I'm not going to be able to tell you exactly what his words were, but there were words of the style of, you know, you changed my life or, you know, you, you know, you were really a huge inspiration for me. And it just means a lot to me to come up and be able to say that to you. And I mean, I was just, I was, I was just floored. And then I, I just looked at him. I said, what's your name? And he told me, and I'm, I'm going to say it here because if he is by chance listening, I'd like him to know, you know, that it, it did mean a lot to me for him to come up. Um, I think it was, it was Nathan Cole, I believe. Uh, either way, I just, I said, hey, Nathan, I really want to thank you. I, I put my hand out. We shook hands. I said, you know, seriously, thank you for coming up and sharing that with me. That means a lot. And, you know, have a good rest of your night, man. And that was it. Um, and, you know, the, the point is, again, I don't, I think I've been pretty good about my ego. I really don't, I'm not trying to impress anybody, man. And I don't, I even feel kind of awkward sharing that with you, right? Just because I'm not trying to boast. The point I'm making is that I understand how important this thing is to all of us, including me. And so if that was something that that guy felt really obligated to come up and share, I want to be there to give him that opportunity to do it and let him know that, you know, I get it because I felt that way about others. And so it's, you know, it's just, it's cool. I, that is one thing I refuse to take for granted is just kind of being part of this special thing that I know means so much to so many people. From a perspective after this conversation, I'd say, you know, obviously you have a huge legacy within hardcore like we talked about, but I think because you came from the um, blind approach and came into agnostic front the way you did and then organically had a huge impact in hardcore through Mailball, you don't see yourself in like a, let's say like a, like a Johnny Thunders or a Sid Vicious, a hardcore kind of role. You're just like a guy excited to play guitar with some of your favorite bands, man. Yeah. I mean, that, and that's, that's truly it. And that's, that's all I ever think of it. And I'm also glad that I can go to shows and, you know, I, for a while I was keeping up a lot better than I do today, but there are still newer bands coming out and, and, you know, um, Sometimes I don't get it musically at all. And I, I almost appreciate that even more because it's like, fuck, man, wave that flag, man. I don't know what it is you guys are exactly doing, but I, I know the spirit is there. That's what's, what's important. You know what I mean? So, and part of me thinks at my 53 years of age, I'm not supposed to get it. You're doing it right. You're doing it. You're, you're, you're preaching to your generation and on some level telling me and the older cats, you know, hey, go fuck off for a minute because because it's our time right now you guys you know you had your moment we're not here i don't want people fucking you know bowing down to me or or others in our generation acting like you know we're some type of fucking kings or you got to kiss the ring or any bullshit like that that is the exact opposite of what this is supposed to be i appreciate respect i feel like i you know i'm at least deserving of that but i don't i don't you know it shouldn't be about admiration or you know fucking putting anybody up on a pedestal it's just you know let's all just fucking do this thing i think it goes back to something you said way earlier on about you know 
you came into something that already existed in Minnesota, you know, and the, everything in hardcore is built upon some form of foundation set by someone else. And in today's hardcore scene, there's bands that draw from stuff that like I would either hyper aware because my bands were playing around that time. And I kind of either was like, Oh yeah, I know these bands or they were on the other side of the road where I'm like, I don't even know why you would associate this with the hardcore, but okay, <laughs> go for it. You know, like the young kids have a lot of different wells to draw from differently yes. than previously. So it, yeah, I love what you said about like, yeah, it's not, oh, they're not writing for 53 year olds and they're not writing, for, they're not even writing for 43 year olds, if we're being honest. <laughs> yeah. So that's just, that's the issue is we have to kind of not shelter them, but we got to kind of let them have their space because if we were their age, we'd be like, oh, fuck you. Why do you care what we're doing? You know, like, and that's exactly, exactly, exactly. Matt, I'm going to have you back on the show. I, I know you, I mean, you kicked ass. I know you had a lot of stuff going on tonight. I just, I really appreciate you coming, man. I really appreciate you coming on here. I told you we'll talk a lot about hardcore. I think we're going to get you back on and do another two hours. <laughs> I love it, man. Cause truly, I mean, I could, I could keep going, um, you know, again, cause it's just, it's just such a, a, a big part of my life. And it's just, you know, I mean, it's, it's our culture, right? Yeah. I mean, it, it really is who we are. If you've been, involved in it the way you and I have for as long as we have and, and for, you know, and, and gotten into it just so deep where, you know, you know, you're, you are promoting shows, you are keeping it alive because of your love for it. You play in a band and, you know, you, you interact with other bands, um, all of which helps just keep this thing together. Um, not only, to help the scene itself, but it's because it's something you crave, right? Um, I, 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 I thought about this the other day, thinking about this whole conversation we're going to have. And I couldn't, I couldn't say it any differently than like, you start rolling a ball and it rolls down the hill. Like, yeah. I'm not going to run down the hill and stop it. I just, all right, this is where we're at next. Now I'm at the point of like, well, we do our fest. We do these shows. We help these kids. We do these bands. Because you get into one thing and you end up in another thing. And then like the connectivity that happens through hardcore is it's really weird when some, I mean, family comes to family comes to mind and different things come to mind why people have stopped at times. But like, if you don't have that stoppage for that kind of stuff, what are you going to do? You're just going to one day just turn it off and go, oh, no, nah, I, I just do golf now. I don't have anything to do with hardcore. I wouldn't, exactly. I wouldn't, even, know, I wouldn't even know how to do it. You know? Uh, um, yep. Yep. Uh, I leave you one of the coolest things I saw from Keystone Jam, which is like, emblematic of the cool parts of hardcore when we do these kind of shows at one point there was you beto and fred mesk talking yes yes and i was sitting there going not only is this just like an epic moment and i love i the reason why i like the backstage part of stuff bro <laughs> it's all good um, <laughs> the reason why i love the backstage part of huh. things is you see people from hardcore interact as friends but it was just awesome to see like three iconic New York hardcore guitarist and it was you guys weren't shredding and like air guitar but it was like this is like a fucking these are three guys that are responsible for a big part of what modern hardcore is now and it was awesome it was awesome to see that no one bothered you guys as you were hanging and I was like I was like someone should take a picture but it's a better silent moment to just see all three (laughs) of them dudes hanging out man it was so fucking cool that was a fun time too man I I, uh, you know it was it was it was good to be there in that room with with those two brothers of mine, um, and again, it's what keeps me coming back. 
Listen, man, thank you for coming on the show. Uh, any kind of project that you want to talk about, any kind of like thing you want me to link you to, let me know. And um, we're going to bring it back home. Yeah. Love to, Joe. Anytime. Are you going to stick with H2O or are you just helping them out right now? I'm 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 in it to win it, man. Um, yeah. You know, uh, I couldn't be happier playing with with uh, with those guys. I mean, they are my family. Um, we've got so much history together as friends and as bands. Me not being in the band, but Madball and H two O were, you know, definitely peers um, and close ones. Um, so it just feels so, you know, natural to to just be up on stage with those guys and. Um, it works real well with my schedule. It's it's great. I love it. I love, you know, it's keeping me young, man. Well, next time we get on, we're gonna we'll talk more, not just of like history and the what's next, but I wanna talk more about overall your overall overarching look of hardcore from your perspectives and all this other stuff. Thank Let's you for coming it. on the show and thank you for what you've done for hardcore, man. Appreciate it. Thank you, Joe. I appreciate it. Where else but in hardcore can you find someone who has had such an awesome impact on the entire culture, the scene, for generations before and generations to come? Matt, absolute fucking a prince. And I can't wait to have him back on the show. Remember that this weekend is FYA Fest in Tampa, Florida. So we'll all be out there hanging out. Thank you for supporting this podcast. Hopefully we can get my buddy Richie and G together. Start doing some rule of threes. We'll see. Richie, I hope he gets Post-America Podcast back on. And um, we will probably have an episode of this hardcore podcast out on the Saturday or the Sunday. Because I won't have time to get to it while traveling. It's the best I can offer for you. So New Year, we got a new uh, a new thirst for kicking ass. Thank you for Maddie to help kick us into gear here with this one. First of the year. Um, And again... Once again, rest in peace to Mike Gibbons, Leeway, and to Boston Hardcore's favorite son, Jimmy Flynn. So, um, every year we're going to be saying this over and over again about people when it's sad. So while they're here, love them. If you don't know them but you respect their work, tell them and support them whenever you can. TIHCpodcast.com. Talk to you later.